How are you liking it over there? It's awesome. It's great. It's it's uh, it's fun. I mean, there's, it's it's hard, but it's uh, it's been really good. Well, this is a busy time for you guys because it's it's like a busy time of the year. Period. Because it's like May and June is like when everybody in tech wants to if they're launching anything that they're, they're doing it now. Like you got to get it out before July and August. Um, and you guys have a big conference that just got wrapped up, right? Yeah, which was my third time as uh my third time attending it but my first time working it and uh totally different experience <laughs> um but it's i mean it's it is an amazing conference it's probably you know obviously it's different than something like wwdc or ces but as far as executive conferences go in tech that the public is invited well sort of invited to um i think it's the best one well and it, it's you know it the history clearly dates to when it was called all things D I mean, it's, you know, it's Kara and Walt and the big red chairs. And, and, you know, it was the, the, basically the only conference that Steve jobs went to besides Macworld and whatever Apple would put on. Right. And it's then, and the difference it's, you know, the, the big difference is that when Apple puts on a keynote, it's not really a conference. It's, you know, here's everything we have to say and it's prepared and, you know, on stage there, it's Walt and Kara asking the questions. Right, totally. Yeah, the difference in right. um, preparedness and who, who kind of lays out what uh, what they talk about and all that. But it was great, uh, actually. You know, um, you know, watching the the videos now, I you know, I kind of wonder, like, man, what if Jobs were still here? What would he be talking about? Uh, it kind of kind of ruins the mood. But uh, watching. Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, um, just really, really exciting and really interesting. Yeah, it's a great list. I mean, I would, I would say, you know, it's pretty hard to top in today's executive world. Bezos, a one-two punch of Bezos and and Elon Musk. Yeah, it was it was great because Bezos kind of has taken the role of the elder statesman almost, um, as far as like CEOs who are still really, really involved in the day to day. Um, and you know, would talk not only at, at length about the products that their companies make, but just kind of the bigger picture in general, which is kind of the role that Jobs would would do. You know, he would talk not only in detail about how Apple thinks, but also just kind of what's going on in in the world. And you know, if you if you haven't had a chance to watch the the full video, it was eighty minutes of Jeff Bezos talking to Walt Mossberg, and then the other one was, I, I believe, over an hour of. Kara Swisher and Walt interviewing Elon Musk. Um, they're 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 all available for free on Recode. You should check them out. Um, it's really interesting. Uh, and Musk, meanwhile, Musk kind of has played this role as like the the wacky guy in a spacesuit, basically. Who um, you know half half of the talk was uh, a, a physics lesson, and the other half was you know let's pretend that we're uh, inside of a video game. Um, <laughs> It was I don't know it was it was crazy and it was super fun and that and that one came at the end of like a for me a sixteen hour day so yeah that might be a little mind blowing to have Elon Musk up there speculating on whether I mean the, the idea was that, you know and it's not like he's the first person I mean anybody who ever smoked a little weed in college has had the same yeah <laughs> the same uh, you could go down that rabbit hole pretty easily but I mean you it's it's a serious question that that actual scientists have pondered is. Is the universe as we perceive it? What could it be? A computer or simulation of some in you know some kind of super advanced civilization? 
Right, and I think his answer was like, there's a one in billion chance that we're not in a simulation. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to say, I, I, I disagree with that. I kind of feel, I kind of lean towards the Occam's razor explanation that, no, this probably is it. Um, I, I don't want to, you know, I think people should watch it because it's interesting to see a smart guy riff on this. It really is. So I'm not trying to discourage people from actually watching it. I promise, I promise to put the links to those two videos in the show notes. They really are worth watching. Um, I think that the argument that there's an infinitesimally small chance that this is the real universe is that if you assume that computers are going to keep getting faster at the rate that they've gotten faster, you know, and that civilization is going to, you know, we're not going to destroy ourselves. Um, eventually we're going to have computers that could simulate an, something as complex as the universe and, they're going to have, you know, the, and, and they're going to be billions of those simula si simulations. So if any civilization got to this level of uh, technology first, then the, the odds are that of all the things that are as complex as the universe, that, uh, that we're in the one that's actually real is very small. Do you think that's fair paraphrasing? Yeah, that's basically what he said. Uh, which, you know, I mean, we wouldn't know, would we? But <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> I guess we wouldn't know, would we? Uh, I don't know. They figured it out in the Matrix. That's true. I don't. Know. <laughs> That's true. We just needed a Nokia phone and uh, some pills, I guess. I think that one of the things that makes these two guys interesting, and it's one of the things that I mean, Jobs was just a compelling figure, period. But and I think there's even like a term for it. But that it's it's not just the fact that they're CEOs and it's not just the fact that they're, they run interesting companies and it's not just the fact that they have their interesting minds and they come up, you know, they say interesting things, but it's that they're the founders of the company that CEO founder it has a certain magic and maybe there's no real, maybe it shouldn't, maybe that's not quite logical. Maybe that's sort of a, a lizard brain aspect of, of human perception, but that somehow there's, there's a, a gravitas to a CEO founder that say Tim Cook is never going to have. Yeah. And, and I don't, you know, and, it, and I don't know if that's because they're a founder or, you know, because they're still CEO, but maybe just because they're the type of person that would be the founder of something truly successful and, and big. Uh, and, and I think it's, it's kind of interesting in comparison to many of today's CEOs who make cool things and then kind of, you know, escape, you know, quit the company or, or something like that. Um, not only are they still there, but they're using their power and influence in really interesting and creative and productive ways. Uh, you know, in, in Bezos's case, doing space research and starting new companies and buying one of the nation's most storied newspapers um musk too basically creating now creating free startup ideas for everyone <laughs> every couple of years like the hyperloop and now what was he talking about uh the uh the mesh that goes in your brain and lets yeah. you i, I forgot I, what it was <laughs> yeah that was, uh, he lost me there yeah <laughs> i believe him but i right i i, I but it's I cool. I, I really, I really liked it. Um, and you could also, so we, you know, we also had Sundar Pichai, which you know, in the same vein as Cook, like he's the CEO of one of the most powerful companies in the world, um, 
he's an interesting guy, but doesn't carry the same weight as a Bezos. And then Bill and Melinda Gates, and you could you can really tell that Bill is no longer thinking as the CEO of Microsoft, but right. is you know as a world leading philanthropist and is really actively much more interested in science and and medicine than you know the the nuts and bolts of technology and the internet yeah um something interesting too and i i don't know if it's coincidence or if there's really something to it to the fact that bezos and musk are in fact directly competing in terms of the having uh space you know rocket ship startups trying to privatize space exploration something that had previously been entirely a a government overseen uh endeavor um elon musk has space x and what what's bezos is blue origin is that maybe? yeah that's it that's it blue yeah. origin um i i don't know if that's a coincidence i i don't know if that's just a, a factor of you know the couple of guys born in the 60s when space you know as young boys with a, an interest in technology how could you not be obsessed with space and that if you ever got successful enough to be in the position to do it it's inevitable that they would or is there something to it like is this really going to be a thing you know in the next 10 15 years that- yeah that uh i think it's some of both i think you know if you have essentially unlimited money um, what's bigger than trying to, you know, leave the planet? Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine bigger things than that. Uh, but I do think a lot of it has to do with when they grew up. I don't know if, you know, I, I don't know if Mark Zuckerberg has much right. interest in space, for example. Um, he might, I don't know. And, and I don't know if that is just because of who he is. And or, our sample set is pretty small here. But it is interesting coincidence that the two of them are, are so into it. Or maybe not a coincidence. That it's certainly interesting. I, I, I don't know. Do you want to go to space? I have late breaking news. I have late breaking news. I have to interrupt the show. This is big news. Uh, my wife just came into the office while I'm recording, and she know I knew that must have been a big deal. She found my missing canisters for the uh, fizzy machine. <laughs> Where were they? Amy! Yeah? We're going to do it. We're going to reveal it on the show. Where were they? <laughs> it's not funny. Well, where were they? Or fun. Um, they were in the coat closet. Um, somebody put them, like, in a milk crate in the back. I don't know who would do such a thing. You. <laughs> and one of them fell on the floor, and I, like, ducked for cover, I thought. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Do you, did you put them there? No, I believe that I believe that that my wife is the perpetrator, <laughs> and I believe that's why she came in with a very sheepish grin. That's cool. How many are there? Three, Se- several, right? All right. Well, now I've got now I've got a lot. See, my 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 system with the Soda Stream is uh, I I have four in the house at all times, and then as soon as three are empty, I take the three to the w- local Williams Sonoma and exchange them for another three. But that that way, I, if I put it off for a couple of days, I've got the fourth one in the machine, you know, keeping me carbonated. So our long national mystery of where my missing three canisters were is is over. All right, where were we? What were we talking uh, about? Spaceships. See, my system is is use one up and mm-hmm. then 
not make SodaStream for six months. No, I, I wouldn't. I, I would die of dehydration. Well, I just have to buy. Uh, I buy like the six pack of Whole Foods sparkling water. Right. Anyway, we were talking about space. Do I want to go to space? No, I don't think I do. I don't. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I grew up at at the wrong time. Like I was born in 1973, so I've never been alive when there's been a man on the moon. And I love the space shuttle stuff when I was a kid, but then it, it's like it was like cool. We have a reusable spaceship. You know, it made it seem like there was a there was a coolness to that. Right there, it, it, even as a little kid, you could tell that there was something wrong about the idea that they'd build these massive skyscraper-sized rockets that look like just amazing, and are just filled with jet fuel. And then by the time these guys got into space, they were in these tiny little things that were just at the tip. And then they come back, and, you know, when they land, it's you know all that comes back into the ocean is this tiny little thing that it you know looks like a refrigerator. Um. And you could tell that that's inefficient. So when the space shuttle program started, I, I was, I don't know, I remember being, I was in school the day the first space shuttle uh, launched and, you know, it was so awesome. They, you know, and they let it, everybody got out of class and we'd crowd around the TV and watch, you know, watch it on the news. Um, and I think they even let us do it again when it landed. I think when it, like the space shuttle landed, they, they pulled us all out of class and let us watch. And it was amazing because here's the ship. It went, you know, there still were rocket, you know, to get it into space, there were disposable rockets, but the main ship itself came back. That seemed like, hey, we're getting somewhere. And then nothing else really happened. Right? I mean, it's like after the space shuttle. And then, you know, the space shuttle program had a couple of, you know, like with the Challenger disaster, it was all kind of a bummer. Yeah. Yeah, from... I would say for me that the main problem is I'm just not really a desert guy. So going to Mars, it's like eh, I don't really, not really interested in going to a giant desert. If it were lush mountains and streams, maybe that that would be interesting. But yeah, I could see it. It maybe you know like the 2001 Space Odyssey idea. If they put a Hilton just in orbit around the Earth, yeah, <laughs> put a Hilton in orbit. I I might be convinced to go to that. Uh, but I feel like, yeah, going to Mars, it, it's, you know, it seems like certainly within our lifetime, there's never going to be a way to go there. That's not, you know, a, a you know, incredibly long trip. Uh, I don't know. I, I feel like it's a long enough trip, uh, flying to California. Right. Yeah. I was going to say enough, uh, <laughs> it's, it's enough, uh, fun to go to LA for a few days. And then, <laughs> if I, yeah. I, I, the Hilton in, or, in low orbit though, I, I would, I, I would, I would, withhold the the right to go up there that could be neat that's basically like one of those emirates flights where you have the 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 suite with the bath with the shower now just going for yeah for a week instead of 12 hours or whatever yeah and you know it would be cool to experience weightlessness i guess i'm not sure i get the infatuation with it and i think you know i think you're right i think it is sort of generational though and maybe these guys are right you know like you know, maybe there was something to the 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 '60s uh, John F. Kennedy, you know, challenge to to do something like that. Seems more than coincidental that Bezos and Musk are both both have that obsession. Hmm. Well, maybe next year we need to have them both on at the same time, dueling dueling rockets. Yeah, it makes me wonder. Like, like, did Bezos hang out? Was he there the next day? Did I like? Did they spend any time together? I know it was, you know, Bezos the first night and Musk the second. And I know Musk was late getting there, so he obviously wasn't there, you know, beforehand. Uh, no, to my knowledge, there was no hanging out. Um, 
which is kind of a bummer. It'd be cool if the kind of VVVIP guests hung out and stayed around for a while. But uh, a lot of times now they just kind of take take off, go yeah. back to wherever they <laughs> come from. Go back to their Bond lairs, Bond villain yeah. lairs. <laughs> yeah, I heard I heard last year uh, that, that the Snapchat guy basically showed up um, took a new, brand new T-shirt out of a box, put it on, went on stage, got off stage, and then left. Basically, <laughs> um, but it's the new T-shirt thing that gets me. Yeah, I'm not going on stage with that. <laughs> no, it was like a brand new mint deep, condition deep, deep V-neck T-shirt. <laughs> Go on stage. I forgot the brand. We we actually um, so we just relaunched the site. Uh, I should probably explain why I'm there, but basically. Um, you know, the Vox Media bought Recode over just over a year ago, and um, you know, in many part, in many reasons for the Code Conference itself, but also because the Recode website is so influential, and um, you know, just a, a brand that people know and and I think trust, and um, you know, they want to do a lot more with it, so they approached me earlier this year with kind of that that in mind and uh it sounded like a really exciting opportunity for me so the, the first thing we did was was completely redesign the site and relaunch it on the vox media publishing system and um and now we're we're about to open a bunch of jobs and and hire new people and, and expand our coverage and and do a lot of that sort of stuff so dan um, you left off the very most important thing that you guys did uh oh yeah we we got rid of the slash. We got rid of the slash, <laughs> which I never was, gave you anyway. No, that was like my first day. I think I, they were like, "What are we gonna do with the slash?" I'm like, "We are getting rid of the slash." <laughs> if there's ever a question about how to write the name of your site, that is a problem. So <laughs> it was great. That's that's why I, that I think they should have instantly, even if it was the first day, they should have given you a raise. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I remember. Maybe it was even you when when they launched. You were like, "I don't know about this slash." Uh, I was. Like I was immediately. I was immediately questioning the slash. Yeah, I I didn't know what the history of it was, and I asked uh, about it last week, and I found out about it. And let's just say it's not a good. It's not an interesting story, so I won't repeat it. Right. But um, no one. I don't think anyone was really tied to it. So well, I, I'm all about simplicity. I mean, if you remember my. Every time I build a website, it's the simplest uh, layout possible, and you know, no, no, too much, not too much depth or or complication. So in my I think case, Recode was, has had that as part of their brand right from the start. Though, even when they had the slash in their name, it, it has been a very reader friendly site. A very uh, con- I disagree. I think it, I think it got better. I think it, I think that the redesign it, is better. It's better. I mean, before um, the front page was this very Pinterest looking thing with yeah, uh, variable yeah. height blocks, and you know, and you could say, well, the front page doesn't really matter. People don't really go there. Um, our front page is actually still very popular. It's often the most popular page on the site and it's much simpler now it's you know it's a, it's a standard reverse cron actually not always reverse cron because we have we have complete control over the order of the of the post but it, it's much simpler um so the, it's the i think my impression is it's mostly used, mostly reverse cron but you guys can pin like a, a blockbuster story to the top yeah we can we actually do some pinning throughout the river um like if there's a feature story we'll keep that in the river up top for a few days uh something like that but 
Um, but but before, like the headline font was Futura, which is a great if for like one word here and there, but not really the kind of font you'd want to ever read a sentence in, for example. Um, so some of that stuff. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't bad. It's just uh, to me, it was an opportunity to really simplify and got to work with the really talented design. Actually, the guy who made our logo designed uh, the Oculus logo for Facebook. He has designed he designed um, the logo for Curbed and some of the other Vox Media properties. So I'm really happy with it. Yeah, and the logo has a little homage to the slash. Yes, the implied slash. Yeah, right. and, and that actually was a little more pronounced in the earlier versions of it, and I kind of had them tweak it a little bit. Yeah. But it works. I mean, the, the, the whole point is for the design to get out of the way and just break news and do good analysis and we'll do more um we we did a few really big ambitious profile features for our relaunch uh which was about a month ago including a um a, a really well reported feature one of the first really about Evan Spiegel the founder of Snapchat and we sent uh one of our reporters to Kansas City to write about Google Fiber um which had had now celebrated, I believe it's fifth birthday there. And, uh, both of those stories did so well that we were almost surprised. And now, now we have to figure out how to do more of those because they were really outside <laughs> of our, our kind of workflow. So, um, we're, we're, we're really happy with that. And, uh, it's been fun so far. You know, the, the, I guess kind of the, the, the back back story is that, um, for me, it's a reunion with, my first boss, Peter Kafka, who hmm. I worked with at Forbes uh, almost 11 years ago, and we left together uh, in 2007 to start Silicon Alley Insider with Henry Blodgett. So we were the first three people with at the site that became Business Insider, and then Peter left to join Kara and Walt at All Things D, and I stayed on. And now, um, you know, well, that's basically when- a decade later, we're reunited and. That's when you and I first got to know each other. Was when you were yeah. at uh, Business Insider or Silicon Silicon, Silicon Alley, Alley Insider at the yeah. time. Alley Insider. I still remember the first time you linked to us and yeah. probably said something, probably like, "Well, this is wrong," but here's something. <laughs> I don't remember, but um, claim chowder or something. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. I'd have Who to knows? look it up. Um, and what's your title? You're you're like the editor, right? I'm the editor in chief. Yeah. Editor in chief. So now you're Peter Kafka's boss. Sort of. <laughs> no one's really Peter's boss, but yeah. um, no, I mean he's. You know, we we work together. Uh, there's and Kara Swisher obviously is very involved in in the site, but basically it's kind of my site to do what I want with. And uh, my perspective is that you know having now worked at uh, some really interesting business publications and watched the tech section basically take over. Um, you know, I think all you need is the tech section. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know. I wrote somewhere that like tech, we used to cover tech as a thing, but now tech is everything. So, uh, we'll keep adding new coverage areas. We, we recently hired a really wonderful transportation reporter to cover the rise of, well, it's not the rise anymore, but the continued growth of Uber, Tesla, and those types of companies. And, you know, I anticipate that, and and by the way, that's a role that, you know, even three years ago, we would have kind of scratched our heads out like well why would a tech site need a transportation reporter but obviously of course <laughs> of course you do um, it is funny though it's it's that's a perfect example of like how this industry changes 
on a you know five years is a good a good distance to go back five years ago that would have been like a head scratcher and today it's like you're nuts if you don't totally i mean five years ago i think uber already existed but it would have been covered as a you know an app startup or something like that and now everything is an app startup really and just um every industry is is going to be uh you know reimagined by tech uh, some faster than others, and transportation is one that we've kind of identified early as as something that we should really have a have a say in in covering. Uh, I imagine you know at some point we'll be covering the the tech of of food or uh, finance or all kinds of stuff. Basically, wherever we wherever wherever we have personal interest or wherever we find a really great journalist who can do um, kind of own that coverage for us. Have you seen a story that uh, sort of a mini controversy about uh, uh, Tesla yesterday? About like some guy's Tesla had uh, the suspend the ball joint, the suspension sort of rusted out. Um, did you see this story? I did not. Uh, no, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. But there was a guy who I'd never heard of before named uh, Niedermeyer. <laughs> which always oh. makes, uh, which always makes me think of <laughs> Animal House. But uh, I've never heard him, but he's a long-time uh, uh, car industry, automobile industry writer. Edward Niedermeyer. Okay, not name. the – I know another Niedermeyer. No, but... I'll send you a link, but I, okay. I, I'm pasting this into the show notes right now, so I won't forget. Here we go. Boom, there it is. Uh, and the gist of his article and his writing on Tesla and Tesla responded. And it seems it's, again, it's sort of like, you know, Musk as jobs, like we're sometimes like, like with those, like, uh, I mean, sometimes he'd sign them like with thoughts on music, but like, remember the one time there was like a fact on the app store, it was like an FAQ and it was like, there was some stuff in there. Like, you know, the app store doesn't need any more fart apps. You know, not everything <laughs> yeah. needs to be made. And you could just tell that Steve jobs, like, yeah. <laughs> Not just like stood over it, but that he like had his hands on the keyboard for some of that, and it, the 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 Tesla PR response to this was uh, sort of dismissive in a way, uh, tonally in a way that uh, like you know, and I, there's enough people with Teslas out there; they're obviously not all falling apart. But you know, the gist of it was that they really blamed this guy because he lived at the, he had like a two mile driveway to a remote home that was like a dirt road, and that the car was just covered with dirt, and it's sort of an unexpected use of it but it's you're holding it wrong right but the gist of this Niedermeyer guys what made it more interesting than the specific incident of this ball joint and one Tesla at Model S and and whether there in general there's a problem is this guy who's a longtime automobile industry watcher is very pessimistic on Tesla more so than anybody I've seen and his argument is that um Again, I'll put it in the show notes. It's an interesting argument. Uh, and I'll probably link it from Daring Fireball, actually. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. But his argument is that it's there's a counterintuitive aspect to pricing cars. And that people think, hey, when you spend a lot of money on a car, like let's say like a Model S, um, you expect a better quality car. And that's actually not true because you go super expensive and get like a Lamborghini or Ferrari and things fall apart all the time and they're always in the shop. And it doesn't matter because if you've got enough money for a Ferrari, you could just have your chauffeur drive you around in your Mercedes until the car's back out of the shop. And that it's the lower you go in prices, the lower the price car, the more the person who's buying it 
absolutely positively relies on it and therefore it needs reliability and that that's the secret to Toyota and Honda's success you know starting in the 70s is that they from the top down were focused on uh quality in a way that a company from Silicon Valley is, isn't going to get it right because quality at every step of the process is sort of an, the antithesis of, of the Silicon Valley model, which is move fast and we'll fix problems later. Like the revolution that Toyota brought to the assembly line was that the old way was that the car would keep moving down the assembly line. And even if a fault was identified, they'd try to fix the fault after it got off the end of the assembly line. And what Toyota's, the Toyota way, and you know, that's actually a thing, like the W is capitalized, the Toyota way, is that as soon as a fault is identified in a car in the assembly line, the entire assembly line shuts down and they almost move it in, in reverse to identify where the fault happened and fix it right there to make sure that it isn't, you know, perpetrated in, in more than one car. Um, even if it's expensive to shut down the assembly line and do it that way. But then that, that, that sort of expense of that is sort of what motivates everybody along the way to be hyper-focused. You don't want to be the guy who shut down, you know, caused the assembly line to shut down. And that Tesla doesn't have that mindset. And as they move down to more affordable cars, um, what's this, the new one called the model three what's it called the, i think the, so um whatever the one is called that everybody went nuts for and and bought gazillion pre-orders for at this thirty-five thousand dollar price range people's expectations for reliability uh are going to be way higher than they were for the hundred thousand dollar model s and that he doesn't think that they're suited to do it interesting theory yeah i don't know about that i mean he seems really i, I again i don't know i've never I don't own a Tesla. I don't know what their kind of global reliability is, but he he did seem to really care about quality when he was talking about it at Code, where he was saying even the the people who bought the base level thirty five thousand dollar version would get a pretty freaking awesome car. Yeah. Um, you know, definitely not like the kind of situation where you need to upgrade to the fifty thousand dollar tier or whatever. You know, I'm making that number up. Um, to get a great car. So uh, I, it seems like safety is probably the biggest priority, but also, and you know, and also cool features, but I don't know. It seems like I don't, I don't have the perception that Tesla doesn't care about quality. I don't know. I, you know, it might also be the kind of thing where they're not old enough to have a long-term example of, of how their cars hold up over time. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, it, that seems like a, you know how you were describing this. We'll fix it later. That seems like the attitude for a lot of software companies, uh, especially because the internet has made it so easy to patch software as it goes. And you know, you could also argue that that's one of Apple's problems that they don't do that enough. Um, but when it comes to hardware, it seems like the companies that excel at hardware make stuff to last more than. A software company, so I don't, I don't know. Uh, and the other part of the controversy is that apparently it's come out that um, when you're with with certain out of warranty repairs, that if your your Tesla is out of warranty, let's say it's like three years old and you take it in, but it's a weird problem, and they run it up uh, the chain, like, hey, should we fix it for this guy or at a discount or for free? That sometimes when they do that, they ask the person, or, or in exchange for it, they they have you sign what they call a goodwill agreement, which is effectively an NDA that you're not going to talk about 
that you're we'll, we'll you know instead of what's charging you three thousand dollars for this repair we'll only charge you a thousand dollars but you but you need to sign this that says you're not going to talk about the problem and people <laughs> some people are spooked about the you know the the in a way that some people just get spooked when anybody's asked to sign an nda yeah or how about the guy who what did he trash them on Twitter so he can't? Uh, yeah, <laughs> just literally can't buy a Tesla. Stuart, Stuart Alsop, longtime yeah. <laughs> technology columnist and and uh, now a, a uh, VC. <laughs> Elon Musk personally canceled his order. <laughs> Amazing, <laughs> which is a very Steve Jobsy type thing. I mean, they're they're very savvy about some of this stuff. They. I wrote a post a couple of years ago about how they are effectively a, uh, their own media company too. The way he would, the way that he handled criticism by the New York Times and you know in other situations where Tesla essentially published you know their own media um, without going to a, another reporter or something like that. They're they're certainly ahead of the uh, ahead of the curve in a lot of those things. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I've got these. I've put a couple links in the show notes already, so they'll be there for everybody who wants to read them. Here, I'll paste it for you. You don't have to read it while we talk. Um, let me take a break, actually. It's a good time to take a break and thank our first sponsor. And it's a new sponsor. Could not be happier to have them here. It's Eero, E-E-R-O. Um, here's what they make. They make a brand new system of Wi-Fi routers. Uh, why would you want to do that? Well, here's why. Wi-Fi is broken because uh, for most people in most houses, unless you live in like a studio apartment, um, it's if you have dead zones in your house where like you know you don't get good Wi-Fi, it's because it's just really hard for one Wi-Fi router to reach everywhere. Um, it's just uh, it's really just the nature of physics that the 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 waves just can't pass through walls as easily as they can pass through the air. And most people have walls and floors and multiple floors in their houses. So it really doesn't make sense. And then the old way of trying to extend it, uh, you know, oftentimes you'd end up with multiple networks within your house. It's like you have to be like a, a system administrator to, to do it. So the single router model just doesn't work. What you need is a distributed system. And that's what Eero is. And it is amazingly simple. So, they sent me, as part of the sponsorship, they sent me a package. I got it. I set it up. They sent me a three-pack. They give you three of these little things. Each one is identical. They're just little pucks, little Apple TV-esque sized pucks. A little bit thinner, a little bit bigger, but a little square, round-wrecked puck. Honestly, it really does look like something Apple would design. It's that sort of uh, visual aesthetic. It's not something you'd, you'd want to hide you know, somewhere in a cabinet or something like that. It's it, it easily something you wouldn't mind having out you know, on behind your TV or whatever it is. Um, uh, it's got all the security stuff you'd want. State of the art WPA two encryption, uh, great customer support. You can call them up on the phone and get a hold of an Wi-Fi expert within 30 seconds. Um, and it's just so simple. They recommend one Eero for every thousand square feet of your home. Most houses, Two or three Eros, it's fine. So the three pack is a good starting point for just about anybody. And if you want to buy more, you can just buy more. Um, and it, you just plug it in to your router. You replace, take your old router, throw it away. Plug this into your cable with the Ethernet. Right, just one of them gets the Ethernet. Then wherever else you want to put them around your house, just put a couple more, and they just configure themselves into a, a mesh network and just offer one 
effectively from you as somebody who just wants to hook up your MacBook to the Wi-Fi or your iPhone to the Wi-Fi. It just looks like one network. You put the password in. Um, to configure it, you don't have to go to one of those goofy, you know, fakey-fake websites with, with an IP address or whatever. They've got a nice app right there in the App Store for iPhone and Android. Uh, you just go there on the app and configure it right there. Really nice app for configuration. Could not be easier. One of the pucks, it's not like a special one, just pick one of them. One of them, plug it into Ethernet, plug a couple more in around the house on different floors, and all of a sudden, the, the fact that you can't get Wi-Fi in your bedroom or something like that, it's, it's all over. So I've got one. I can vouch for the ease. I can vouch for the fact that the dead spots that we've had in our house are no longer dead spots. Um, really, really great. So if you are looking, if you've got, if you're dissatisfied with your Wi-Fi at your house or looking for a new Wi-Fi router, go check out Eero. Go to Eero, E-E-R-O.com and use the code, the talk show, and you will get free overnight shipping. So use that code. You'll get free overnight shipping. You'll have it tomorrow. My thanks to Eero. Uh, speaking of breaking news, what do you think about Scoop uh, Scoop Gurman leaving nine to five Mac, and uh, he's heading to Bloomberg? Yeah, um, it's funny. I'd actually heard about that a few months prior, but I didn't didn't say anything. And I'm glad it. I'm kind of amazed it stayed uh, stayed quiet. I heard about it too. Uh, I heard about it back at the March Apple event. Oh, cool. Um, and I even heard that it was Bloomberg. And yeah. I thought about being snarky and posting something about it. And I thought, nah. Because nah. it seemed like it wasn't it wasn't up and it wasn't clear to me whether Seth Weintraub at nine to five Mac knew. It turns out I think he did, at least by March. Um, but I didn't want to be I didn't want him to, to hear it that way. And I thought, yeah, screw it. But I just thought it was funny that that uh Mark Gurman, who who spoils all these things for Apple and other companies, that uh a couple of people I know knew, and nobody nobody leaked it. Yeah, that's restraint. Uh, I think it's great. I think it's cool. I mean, it's going to be uh, a bummer to compete with him. Um, yeah. So, hey, Mark, if you if you find yourself miserable at Bloomberg, <laughs> give me a call. Uh, but I think it's cool. I, you know, he's going to get to work with Brad Stone, who's a great journalist, and have uh, what I would imagine are. Very uh, nice resources available to him, and also a TV network, and and also um, you know an, an organization that has a very specific mission and a business model that has nothing to do with uh, internet advertising, and is being run by a um, you know a non a non web guy who many people thought would would not really come back and and this is Mike Bloomberg of course not really right. come back and be the boss again and then showed up and was the boss again and um you know is is a very profitable business that is dominated by the terminal which is going to face increasing competition so it's it's and is also kind of uh in the business of producing soulless but extremely accurate very fast uh, you know, market moving news. So should be interesting. I mean, I, I would guess that a lot of the stuff that would be uh, publishable at nine to five Mac will not be publishable at Bloomberg either because it's too small, you know, like feature story, you know, st- not, I don't mean long feature stories. I mean, stories about features of products that probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't really 
cut it. Uh, right. We'll see how that goes. I don't know. But it also sounds like he's going to be working on non-Apple stuff too. So yeah. if he can use some of his reporting techniques, which you know I admire, um, to break news on, on other big companies. I, I thought I read that he was going to be working on stuff like Google and Amazon as well, um, consumer tech. I think that's great. So it should be really interesting to see how it goes. Um, yeah, it's the scoop aspect. And that's why when I heard Bloomberg months ago, it immediately clicked as, oh, that makes sense. Because Bloomberg, and again, this is, you know, you and I getting a little inside baseball here, but Bloomberg, and, and it, but it's interesting to you because Recode is definitely a, a scoop company too, right? Like you, you guys definitely pride yourselves on breaking some stories, a lot of stories first. Um, Absolutely, yeah, and and Bloomberg, it's it's institutional at Bloomberg too. Like, you know, it's sort of almost the opposite of me, <laughs> who <laughs> I, I almost seldom ever break anything uh, and don't really care about it. But it's you know, it, and it's um, exemplified by the leaderboard at TechMeme, at which you know German is so far out in the top of it's ridiculous. Yeah. I do. Th- I think you're right, though. It's going to be interesting to see how his uh, the faster and looser style or standards of nine to five Mac compare. You know how how that translates to an institution with a more formal um, set of standards. And you know, I would say, not having ever worked with Mark, that uh, his his accuracy rate suggests that his personal standards are quite high. Yes, uh, because it, it's very easy to get sucked into posting what you think is a scoop and then being wrong. Um, whereas, you know, even when he is somewhat wrong, it's usually, you know, could be easily explained by, well, he was right at the time, but, you know, three months passed and it's totally reasonable for Apple to change the name of something or, you know, whether, whether they, <laughs> I don't think they did it to spite him that one time or whatever, <laughs> but, <No. laughs> um, but like, he, you know, to my recollection is never really been, wrong about something in a way that suggests that his journalism is highly flawed. Uh, I, you know, I don't know who his sources are, but my guess is that he's has pretty high personal standards about that. So uh, I've actually also never worked for Bloomberg, so I don't know what how, how the... They, there's also the Bloomberg Way, capital W, and um, and I'm not sure how that will work with, with Mark, but it certainly is a is an interesting place to be right now. So, should be fun, or yeah. at least a learning experience. I mean, the dude is twenty three, so <laughs> yeah, he can do it. He can kind of do uh, a lot of different stuff and figure out what he likes. Yeah, it's and if you know if he doesn't like it, he can always move on. Interesting. Yeah. Um, but it, it, to me, it's also interesting that he went that route as opposed to, um, you know, doing his own thing or taking on um you know more independent stuff like nine to five or yeah uh creating his own company or trying to work somewhere you know and i have no idea who else he talked to um you know he he certainly could basically work at a lot of places i mean i would obviously have wanted to hire him at recode if if uh if i had gotten to him before bloomberg did uh but yeah it's cool I mean, you know, to be to be open about what what I was thinking, you know, this was when I was thinking about doing something new this year. One of the things that jumped back to mind was doing my own thing again, and you know, Splat F two or something like right. that. Um, there's nowadays there are business models that didn't really exist when I 
started Splat Up five years ago. So, what about this new App Store stuff? I think it's interesting. So you uh, you got briefed. So why don't you start off and, and explain what? So briefly, I guess what happened? Yeah. So it's very fast moving. It was Monday, uh, and someone at Apple PR uh, asked me if if I could be available Tuesday for a half hour or so phone call with Phil Schiller about some developer news that they're putting out ahead of WWDC next week. I said I would try to find some time. <laughs> maybe I could maybe I could squeeze that in. Uh, so Tuesday, you know, I had a, uh, I was going to say a conference call, but, it, you know, it was speakerphone and there were a couple other people on the other end. But, it, you know, it's, uh, it wasn't like other – it was just me on, on my end. It wasn't like uh, the, the other report. I think some people, the people in California got to meet with them live, like the, the Verge. Um, that obviously wasn't going to work for me. Um, but, yeah, and, and Schiller told me that three things – three of the things that they're doing uh, or have already done – is uh, the faster review times for the app store, uh, all the app stores. Um, we've noticed that because, you know, developers who are submitting apps and are used to week-long approval times, getting their app approved same day, you know, it sticks out. But it's not a fluke. It's not some kind of short-term uh, uh, happenstance. It's a deliberate plan that they took. Um, three parts of, the, what did they say? Staffing changes. <laughs> Which I think, I think there were a couple of managers in there who who uh, uh, were sort of roadblocks to to moving this forward, and that they're no longer there. Um, but in addition to that, I th it, it was very clear from talking to Schiller that the, in addition to the staffing changes, I think that there's also just the some some changes to the way they're applying just the pure manpower of how many people are doing the, the reviews, um, tool changes. Uh, and I heard a little bit more about this off the record from other people later in the week, but definitely some some really good engineers at Apple. Um, I mean, they're not talking about the details of what these tools are, but that there's there's been a significant effort expended within Apple to create internal tools to expedite the software, the, the app review process. Um, they're not revealing details, not even off the record, but... Uh, it's not minor. That's the thing I've understood. That months months of time from really good engineers were applied to this. Uh, and then the last one, the mystery one to me, is policy changes. And I asked Schiller if he could expend upon that, expound upon that, and he hesitated and said, "I'd rather not talk about it." <laughs> so I don't know what that means. But uh, he did, and then he stopped, and he did give one example, and he said, "Well, here's one example." Um, that if uh, if an, a developer has three apps and they're sort of interrelated and and they update some core component of it and all three apps get submitted at the same time, now when the reviewer pulls the app from the queue, I mean I, he didn't use the word inbox, but effectively the inbox of of apps waiting for approval, uh, they'll get all three at once and they can review them together. And if there's any kind of you know interconnectedness between the apps, it, it can really exp it, it can make it you know an hour long thing instead of a days long thing, um, which is interesting. But to me, that's not really a policy change. That sounds like it's more part of the tool changes. I suspect that part of the policy. This is uh, nobody told me this. This is just my thinking about what this could be. Uh, nobody told me this on the record or off the record, so I could be way off. But I can't help but think that maybe some of the policy changes are a little bit of um, 
almost just granting the the reviewers a little bit of common sense um uh latitude where like if a developer if they pull up the the app and they look at the developer's history and it's Marco Arment and Here's all the apps that he's had before. Here's the app he's submitting a new version of Overcast. Here's the previous updates to Overcast. And he says that this is an update that fixes a syncing bug. And that maybe that there's a sort of like, well, I think we can trust this guy. Look at his history. He's got a reputation. Put it through. You know, that, or, you know, run the whatever test you want to do. But that uh, an app from a, a developer with a trusted record is going to get less of a, uh, thorough combing over than a brand new 1.0 app from a developer who doesn't really have a history or whose history isn't really um, uh, uh, high profile. I can't help but think that it must, that there must be something like that. I don't know. Um, I mean, and this seems to make sense. And if anything, it's, it's kind of absurdly late to make changes like this i mean if you if you think of the app store as a nine-year-old product pretty much every other product that was launched nine years ago is has been vastly improved uh and it seems like you know whether it was just a low priority for apple but the, the developer app store experience just really didn't change that much over the years yeah the things that they added were so minor i mean it's things like bundles you know where you could sell two the same developer could sell a bundle of two or three apps as a single purchase uh, you know it's that's i mean it, it was nice but i mean it's like wow that's not really a major change and it it wasn't something that really addressed some of the fundamental problems that developers had with the app store, like these lengthy review times. Right. And, I think and, it's fair you know to what? say, I would guess that if there were any, and this is, you know, it's far fetched, but the idea that remember back in the day was, Oh, there should be multiple app stores and Apple should have to compete with, with mm -hmm. other app stores. You, you could bet that if there were other app stores that Apple would have made improvements like this a long time ago and much more quickly. So, um, you know, it, yes, it's nice to see stuff like this happen, but, I you know so there was a, a not really a not like a major reorg but a minor reorg and some promotions back in December um within Apple and one of the things that got shuffled around was that the App Store got moved from being under Eddie Q to being under Phil Schiller um and that Phil Schiller was going to take a, a much uh, more active role in overseeing it and this is the result of it. That's why it was Schiller who was giving me and, and Jim Dalrymple and the verge Lauren good at the verge. And I think, um, I think the UK telegraph, I forget who wrote it, but I think that they might've been the only four, we might've been the only four who got it a day in advance. Um, and if it was more than that, it wasn't many more. Um, but that's why it was Schiller doing the briefing. Cause it's, this is his baby. I mean, this is his, this, these are the results of his actions. I think it's completely non, hyperbolic to say that the app store has improved more in the six months under Schiller than it did in eight years under Eddie Q. I, I don't think that's yeah, an I'd exaggeration. Agree with that. And why is that? And a couple of, you know, there've been people emailing me, you know, Twitter, you know, what's is this, is Eddie Q, is he incompetent? What's, what's the problem? I don't think that's the case. I think it's, I don't think it's a case that Eddie Q couldn't get things like this done. I think it's just that he didn't choose to, that it, that his worldview and what he saw as important in this store wasn't as developer focused as it as it is under Schiller, and I just think it didn't it didn't rise to a priority level that it 
that it got done. Like it might, these things might have been on the list under Q, but that they didn't percolate to the top of the list and therefore didn't get done. Well, it's also very easy for Apple to feel like the App Store is a huge grand slam hit. I mean, and, and, and a huge success. That right. The number, the growth well, was was unprecedented. The numbers were all up and to the right. And right. And how you know how can you argue with the success of this this store? And by the way, we've we've written you checks for billions of dollars. So why yeah. aren't you happier? Forty billion dollars, I think, is the number. And I think I think that's what Schiller told me the other day. And 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 that might be, it might just be that that was the number from January, and it doesn't even include whatever they've paid since from January to now because of that that hasn't been either hasn't been tallied or hasn't been authorized to come out. And to me, what's even more amazing and, and could be ten to you know, a hundred times more amazing is that's only the money that goes through the iTunes uh, system. It does not include the money that goes, for example, directly to Uber or right. something like that, which right. is in my, you know, I'm, I'm making this up, but it's, it could be five to a hundred times more money that, that actually goes through apps that has nothing to do with, with that $40 billion. So yeah, for me um, by far and away, the most money I spend is on Uber. Without question, uh, through my phone, the most money I spend has got to be through Uber. Um, yeah, or the or the Apple Store app when I buy a new laptop or something like that, but uh, or Amazon or whatever. Yeah, but, but that's a, but there's so much money that goes through these apps, and you, know, you you really do have to make it a better product for for yeah. developers, for app users, for everyone. So, um, you know, so the other, I guess the other changes are more. I guess they're all kind of developer focused. Yeah. Well, well the, the subscription pricing. So how I, do they how do they kind of frame that? It was it was framed as we've had subscriptions but for a very limited number of type of apps. Con- mostly content producing apps like video streaming, audio streaming, you know, like Spotify um it's great. Schiller is such a pro that he's never knocked off. So it's like he never mentions any competitors, even just on like a phone call. Never even so he never didn't mention Spotify or Pandora, but he just mentions you know uh, streaming audio, streaming video. Um, Remember the Daily? I think was one of the first yeah yeah. Uh, and he said news. News obviously qualifies. You know you can subscribe to to uh, paywall publications like. Uh, uh, New York Times and Wall Street Journal through an app. Um, uh, more or less an app that you have to subscribe to get content in, you know, on a regular basis. And he said, we're, you know, we want to change that to open that up to all app categories. Um, and he he mentioned, and I didn't quote him on this, but I know that The Verge did too. The Verge quoted him on it, uh, that it would apply to like a, a productivity app that requires, you know, constant updates to support features and, and stuff like that. And so I took it initially as meaning that just about any app would be able to use subscription pricing in any way they see fit. Um, so that if you wanted to... Um, like an app like Vesper, the app that that you know me and Brent Simmons and, and Dave Whiskus made. If we wanted to do subscription pricing, we could just do subscription pricing. Um, uh, and then you know when they published their own website, it, Apple's website, the language on the web page made it seem as though it was still mostly about getting content, and it was very very confusing. And then you know I emailed Apple PR and I got. I got answers, but they were opaque. 
And it, long story short, you know, and then I got a phone call. Um, and the answer is, I, I posted something last night about this that, you know, they're they're still thinking about how to clarify this, but that they're absolutely aware of developers' uncertainty about this. Definitely are looking forward to, to talking to developers next week at WWDC about the way that developers have in their head that they'd like to use subscription and that in the week after WWDC, they anticipate posting, publishing something that clarifies, some kind of fact that clarifies what the rules are going to be. And when is this? When does this take effect? Is it part of the iOS nine SDK and App Store, or is this something that won't really work until iOS ten anyway? I, 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 that's a good question. I think it's iOS ten. I think okay. they're launching a. So beta. they have time. Yeah, they said that they're launching a beta over summer. Um, and there are already subscription apps, and they'll get to take advantage of that new pricing system immediately it sounds like yeah well and the, uh, the, the new rev share one of the big yeah that might be the biggest thing that they announced was that any app was any app using subscriptions after a subscription is a year old this revenue split changes from 70 30 which is what apple publicly used for everything at all times everywhere um there are long-standing rumors that like on apple tv some of the their individual deals made out with companies that are better probably 85 15 i guess um but that at least for developers in the ios and mac app stores everything is 70 30 in-app purchases app purchases subscriptions everything after a year it goes to 85 15 until the end of the subscription and that's terrific news because that's a significant difference especially if it's a three four five six year subscription it's a lot a lot of money that's like a 20 percent increase so that's interesting, and it applies imme- that applies immediately. So if and you, I believe retroactively, right? Yes. So if you already have a subscription app, uh, you know that that previously qualified for a subscription with the old rules, all of your subscribers who've been with you for more than a year, uh, starting next week, I think you know when the next billing cycle for those subscriptions comes around, it'll be eighty five fifteen for you. That applies immediately, which is nice. I mean, you. You could also argue that it really should just be 97%, 3%, because once the marketing is done, Apple's really only facilitating tra- credit card transactions. But right. um, you know, they also <laughs> are in the position to uh, set the rules. So right. uh, I think it's interesting. I, I, to me, one of the most interesting things about this subscription thing is that uh, this is kind of the problem the App Store solved for prior... Uh, mobile apps if you you know if you think back to the days before the iphone when you had a flip phone or whatever there there were apps and there were games and that kind of stuff and they were all sold on subscriptions and they were comically overpriced subscriptions and the phone companies took most of the money and the developers got hosed on a lot of it which is one of the reasons that these uh these apps really never took off but they all got added to your phone bill yeah, and I be- I think there were even like class action lawsuits about you know how you would kind of get suckered into subscribing to one of them and and never get uh, never it was never easy to get to unsubscribe and that that kind of stuff. But when the App Store came out in two thousand eight and made it you know an ownership model where for 
a few bucks or and then you know what, what eventually went down to 99 cents and free you could actually buy an app and own it that was a huge difference over the previous model where you know you might get tetris for 5.99 a month or something like that of which the developer got less than half of it and so it is a different time and it, obviously the, the the devices themselves have changed so much since then and the apps themselves too uh, i think the better the better model now to, to kind of look at is this is is, is how profoundly different uh, Adobe's business is now that they've been able to switch to recurring subscription revenue for their Creative Suite products and, and, Microsoft, you know, and, and Microsoft too for for Office and you know and if if Apple's trying to make the iPad Pro a professional device and they want companies like Adobe and Microsoft to make their highest end software for it. They really need to support the business models that uh, that those companies are using. So, I think that I, I I do expect them to clarify what sort of apps could do subscriptions. I mean, we've you know you also see on the indie side you see an app like Marco's podcasting app where he charges an optional subscription just because you want to support him. So he, he doesn't I, renew though. I don't think. Yeah, and I don't know how that how that sort of thing i wonder if that uh i wonder if that would hold up under whatever policies they would institute i think that i I, i'm really optimistic about this if apple takes a laissez-faire attitude to it and let developers I, i to me apple's role should be there to serve as the trusted intermediary between you and the developer you're paying for the subscription to, meaning that Apple will be there to make sure that you can unsubscribe easily at any time, that you're not going to get the rate changed on you behind your back, any rate change you have to approve explicitly, um, that sort of thing. Um, and I think that's that's perfect. And, and other than that, I think that they should just let developers try whatever pricing they want and see what works. I don't think that they should really get in the way. So like if a developer of uh, something that doesn't get any content at all, like a calculator app like PCalc from James Thompson, wants to switch to uh, a $3 a year subscription so that there's ongoing revenue um, and that he can keep doing things like uh, updating the app for new OSs and, and not have to... You know, because there's no upgrades. This is the pro- there's no upgrades in the App Store, and I don't think there are going to be. Um, and so, apps like Tweetbot and Twitterific have done things over the years where, like, when Tweetbot comes out with a major new version of Tweetbot, it's a new SKU in the App Store. And if you own Tweetbot three to get Tweetbot four, you have to buy Tweetbot four, and it downloads as a new app next to Tweetbot three on your on your device and you have to set it up again and make sure your accounts are in there and then probably you know delete the old version of tweetbot so you're not getting like duplicate notifications for the dms and stuff like that um and that whole fiddly like now i've got two apps on my home screen and i want to delete the old one and uh, use the new one it's even worse in some ways than old school managing your applications on a mac or pc because of the sandbox Although I guess maybe to app from the same developer, I think maybe when you with Tweetbot because it's the same developer, they can look in the sandbox. Yeah, I guess that actually. Now that I think about it, when I 
I'm confused because I'm a beta tester of TweetBot, so I see all sorts of weird stuff. But I guess maybe they can read the old TweetBot 3 information because they're, they're the same developer, and so it's a little bit easier to migrate. But the whole idea of having to manage these apps as two different apps and, and keep it straight and delete the one you don't want anymore, that's the, that's the sort of system administration nonsense that the App Store is supposed to eliminate. But there's no other way for a developer to, to put months and months and months, if not years of development time into a major new version when most of their customers are, you know, they already have most of the customers they're going to get. That they want to make money, you know, they need to make, they need to monetize the users they already have to support the ongoing development. And to me, subscription pricing is is the way forward. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I, I agree with your assessment that they should let the market sort it out. If, you know, if people want to use this model, then they'll pay for it. And if they don't, they just won't, and the app will fail. So, right. Or it'll change, you know, adapt or die, you know, change to right. a paid up front, go back to paid up front or something like that. Um, and I know that there are people listening. I know, I've heard from you on Twitter. I know that there are people who really hate subscription apps and that they like the idea, like just basic idea of, all right, I'll give you, we'll agree X amount of dollars. I'll give you $5 for this version of your app. And if a year from now you have a version with new features and you want more money from me, I get to evaluate whether those features are worth it to me. And if not, I'll just stick with the one that I have and it'll keep working. Whereas if it's a subscription model and a year from now you're not happy with what the app is and you want to stop your subscription before it renews, the app, may, you know, depending on how the developer has it configured, is probably going to stop working or go back to a very limited feature set, and you're going to lose what you had because you didn't renew the feature. I realize that in some ways that's a step back from the user's perspective. Um, but the truth is that apps tend to stop working after a year or two anyway if if you're not upgrading to the latest version just because of OS changes. The subscription model just makes that more instantaneous. And that's the way stuff has worked on the web Forever, I think the web has sort of changed people's mindset on stuff like this. Like, if you sign up for a service like Basecamp, uh, if you stop paying for Basecamp, there, nobody expects. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Nobody I, expects I, that you can keep using the old Basecamp. Yeah. Yeah. The models have changed, and you know, don't be a cheap ass. I think is <laughs> is is part of it. But uh, you know, if you get value from software, and if the model for the developer to you know build a sustainable business is to make it a recurring revenue thing. I also wonder how much of this is uh, has to do with this new Apple, like we're a services company thing. Probably that's probably not the number one, number two, or even number three factors. But for Apple to get more recurring revenue through the App Store is a great thing as well. So yeah. Well, this is why I think they should take a laissez-faire attitude towards it, and the reason that I'm optimistic. I mean, here to me, the biggest hole in the ecosystem, and I think I don't see how anybody could deny this. The biggest hole in the ecosystem is serious productivity software for the iPad. That there's lots of great iPhone apps that you can do quote unquote work with uh, about as best as you could expect to on the phone. Ambitious apps for the phone. And the Mac, that's the whole reason the Mac even still exists, is that there are serious applications that people who work on their Macs all day long can get their work done on. And those sort of apps, there are some for iPad, but nowhere near as many as there are on the Mac. And a lot of them are a lot and more. I would, I would say nowhere near as many as, as are necessary 
for the iPad to become, you know, the future work machine for a lot of people. Yes, exactly. I mean, and, and an example would be the very, very popular uh, drawing, and it's a sort of specialized in UI design uh, uh, tool, Sketch, Sketch yes. app. It's very popular. And they just announced that they, they, they have a sort of, it's not a subscription, but they have a sort of uh, annual, you know, uh, I'll put it in the show notes. I'll make a note, but they're, but they're Mac only. And people love this app. Sketch is a big, big part of the UI work, UI design workflow for an awful lot of developers. Um, and they don't have an iPad app. And they've actually come out publicly and said, we don't really have plans to make an iPad app because we don't think it'll be worth it financially. We don't think we'll, it, we don't think that the money we could make from it, given the ecosystem, you know, the pricing, you know, the prices people expect on iPad, that it's just not going to be worth it. You know, I think it's, I think Sketch is like $100 on the Mac and it, there's just no way, you know, it doesn't seem like they could, like the iPad supports that. Maybe if they could go to like, say, a $5 a month subscription, they could. Maybe that would work. I don't know. I, I don't want to say Sketch in particular, but that's just the sort of thing. You, you don't see people saying, we're not going to make a Mac professional tool because we don't think we can make money at it. And you do see people saying that on iPad. And I can't help but hope. I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily bet on it, but I, it seems to me possible that subscription pricing for apps like Sketch um, could be the answer for the iPad. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, it, it would have been neat to to launch it at the same time as saying, and by the way, Sketch is coming to iPad. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, and and you know, it, easier it, the, said than done. The switch from buying stuff to subscribing to stuff is happening elsewhere too. I mean, that's where music is going, and there's you know rumors that Apple is in particular, and it you know obviously Apple Music is a big a big effort in subscription pricing, but that they're strategically de-emphasizing purchasing music from iTunes as time goes on. I mean, there have been a couple of reports about that. Uh, and all, I subscribe to paper towels. <laughs> an awful lot of people watch an awful lot of video through Netflix, you know, that they're not buying all this stuff. They're paying Netflix eight bucks a month or nine bucks a month or whatever tier they're at and watching it until their subscription isn't there anymore, at which point they watch nothing. You know, <laughs> you subscribe to paper towels. <laughs> Uh, your paper towels don't disappear though if you stop your subscription. True, um, and I realize there are definitely trade offs, but I think people who want to be knee jerk, I'm going to resist this. Uh, you know, I'm 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 not going down this route at all. You're not moving forward with the industry. And again, I acknowledge that there's it's not perfect, but it's you know, it's the way things are going. There's also the ads. We can talk about the ads, but let me take a break before we do that. I'll come back to that. And and I want to thank our next sponsor. It's our good friends at Harry's. Harry's shaving set will make the perfect Father's Day gift, but you got to order this soon. You got to order like right now. Like you're probably listening to this. I think a lot of people are going to listen to this over the weekend of uh, June 11th and 12th before WWDC. Um, order now and you could get this stuff before the following Sunday, which is Father's Day. So listen, don't even, you know, maybe even just, uh, maybe even just stop right now. Just pause the podcast and go to, uh, harrys.com, uh, and remember the code, uh, talk show, not with the, the, just talk show and you'll save five bucks. Um, uh, just stop the show and go order something for your dad. They have a, a Father's Day shave kit with a matte black razor handle looks great chrome razor stand uh 
Harry's Moisturizing Foam Shave Gel, three of their handcrafted blade cartridges, a travel cover, and it's all for just 40 bucks. And it comes in a sleek, giftable box with the option to add custom engraving and a personalized card. Uh, they have regular shaving kits if you're not looking for a gift. Start at just 15 bucks. Uh, and here's the deal. They, they have their own blade factory. They, they were sourcing them from this razor blade factory that, in Germany, and they were so happy with it, they just bought the factory. They just make the blades themselves. They sell stuff to you guaranteed. And they easily beat the price of big-name companies like Gillette and Schick and those people because they're not going through middlemen. Stuff from Gillette. Gillette makes razor blades, and then it goes to a middleman and a distributor, and then it goes to like your local uh, drugstore's distributor, and then the drugstore's send it to the individual retail place, and the retail place has to pay all this stuff for the uh, store that they're in and all the employees who are there. And then you got to go find a guy to come and unlock the thing, to the anti-shoplifting glass thing, to buy these razor blades. You're paying twice the price for the blades, and it's a big pain in the ass. Go to Harry's, use that code TALKSHOW. You save five bucks off your first purchase, and you can get a Father's Day gift. Uh, you got to act quick on that. Um, and if it's just for you, you can do things like uh, get a get a subscription. There we go, tying it in with the show, where you can get uh, figure out how often you need new blades, and you don't even have to do anything. They'll just show up every every month or three months or whatever you need. So go to Harry's.com and remember that code talk show. Great sponsor. So the last thing Apple introduces uh, search ads in in uh, the App Store. And now that I see what they're doing here, I, I don't think that it's, I think it's worth talking about, but I don't think it's worth, I, I, I think anybody who's upset about it is, it's a little misplaced. I don't know that Apple needed to do this, but I feel like it's, this isn't really detrimental and it might end up helping developers, including uh, smaller ones. Um, I think the fear that people have is that this is going to be a thing where uh, the auctions for these keywords or whatever are all going to be won by bigger developers with big ad budgets. And it's just going to further promote um, the rich getting richer, meaning the most popular apps getting more popular. But talking to Schiller and seeing how they're doing it, I think not. I think this might actually be a good way for small developers, you know, including really small individual ones to, with a minimal ad spend that they're completely in control of, um, to get their app at the top of the listing for more searches. An interesting statistic that uh, that Schiller revealed was that 65% of all app downloads still come, or the, the path to it is from the search box in the App Store app. Um, so getting your app, being able to pay to get your app at the top of that list is actually seems pretty pretty worthwhile. Yeah, I mean, these... These ads work for a reason, and, and they've driven a lot of growth for Facebook's mobile business, and uh, Google has them. Uh, it, it seems logical that Apple would have them too. Uh, I'm sure they'll make a nice amount of money for it, uh, and it may – I don't think it makes up for the fact that the App Store needs to be better organic search, and just the App Store browsing and discovery experience needs to be better. But, you know, it's hard to fault them for for building a system like this. Uh, And even then, I've talked to developers who who buy a lot of downloads on on Facebook and Google, and it's still way cheaper than acquiring a customer almost any other way. Yes, Uh, yeah, I've heard that too. 
So in, my, my, <laughs> in Schiller's parlance, it's quote unquote social networks and search engines. Yeah. But in reality, it's Facebook and Google. And it's right. really no other no other social networks are really big. Twitter has a little bit of it. And and when they first launched it, I think a lot of people were optimistic about it. But it talking asking a few people, it seems like it, it, Twitter is nothing compared to Facebook it, it, with regard to being able to pay for placement to get app downloads. Yeah, I, I would say it's Facebook and Google. It's Facebook and Google. Uh, to me, the question is: Will developers get any good data from Apple on their campaigns? Will they be able to see which keywords? drove users will they be able to tie those users to any other analytics to to tell paid user cohorts versus organic um i'm I'm really curious about that i think so it's it's i i i think that the answer is yes that you'll be able to see if a certain keyword worked or how many came from it um they also have an interesting option where you can just say here's what i'm willing to pay uh and let apple pick the the terms that that would be relevant to your app and you don't even have to pick the search keywords let apple pick them and you only pay per uh so i don't know whether to say click or tap but it's since ios is more popular than mac os i'll say tap pay for tap so as a developer you only pay if your ad is shown but the user doesn't tap it you pay nothing you only pay when the user actually taps on it so if you figure out what what you know what conversion rate you think you can get for everybody who actually taps on your app uh and they even have a calculator for that to help you figure out like uh what you should be considering your highest bid in the auction to make sure that you'd be profitable it seems like they have tools like that and i think that that the reporting tools are um probably pretty good we'll have to see yeah i mean to me so there and then there's always users who will tap the ad and then not download the app. And right. then there are people who will download the app and never launch it. And then they'll launch it once and then never again. So I, I, what I don't know is, will you be able to identify which of your users were acquired through App Store search ads? Oh, I don't think so. Will you be able to compare them? Yeah, I don't think you'll be able to do that because it's so there. there's so many privacy-related right. things. Yeah, and, so I don't... Will you be able to target users that have a competitor's app or something like that? Uh, I remember hearing once that the iAd let you target users based on what, maybe either what apps they had or what songs they had purchased from iTunes or something like that. Uh, I don't really remember though. Yeah, I don't know either. And I, there and there's you can definitely target by location, and a user can opt out of that. You know, it's part of the use location services, and you can go to the settings and, and opt out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is interesting to me. You know. It's. I, I'm not quite sure. I'm not sure. I can think of a perfect example for where it would apply, but um, that seems pretty interesting. But those are the sorts of things that, like, as a as a developer, you would want to have that access. But Apple's privacy focus might prevent you from from having that access. So right. And I'm thinking about you know like something like uh, I don't know like like if a conference has like a conference app that the location thing could help. But on the other hand, that also seems like the sort of thing where, where you shouldn't have to pay at all because the search terms should absolutely, you know, if you type in recode, re- recode conference, the recode app, if you guys had an app, I don't know if you did, but if you did it, why in the world would it not be the number one result anyway? Yeah. I think we had a web app this time that, that actually was very nice. Hmm. 
Supr- actually surprisingly nice, like for a web app. Yeah, yeah I, I think, uh, I mean, it, it, so kind of zooming out a bit, I think it's interesting that they went for the strategy of announcing these things first. Um, my guess is that none of these would have made the key. Maybe the subscription pricing may have made the morning keynote, but probably not the ad stuff. I think and review times would because they could cover it quickly. And I still think that yeah. they're going to, I still think they'll touch upon it. I think they'll, I think they'll say, as you've, as you've probably heard last week, you know, we've made some changes to the app store. It lets them, uh, here's what I think they're going to do. You know, it's like the typical Apple keynote style where they'll introduce it. And then at the end of the segment, they'll, they'll review what it is. We just, you know, here's what we're going to tell you. Now we're going to tell you, now we're going to review. Um, they can skip all but the review and just say, as you've probably heard last week, uh, we've put new systems and tools in place to let app get app reviews to 50% within 24 hours and 90% within 48 hours, and then the crowd will go nuts and then cheer. Um, we're adding subscription prices to all app categories uh, and 200 uh, price points for subscriptions um, and territory-based pricing. Uh, I, we didn't mention that, but that's I, I've heard, and I, I'm, I try not to be U.S.-centric, uh, but... I can't help but be sometimes, but I, I've heard from a couple people that that this territory based pricing for subscriptions could be huge, and the fact that it wasn't allowed before was really problematic. That effectively the old way was you'd set a price if you set it in dollars, the the price in China would just be the conversion rate between you know China's currency and U.S. currency. Whereas now you could set a dramatically lower price in a country like China and India, um, where you know, your U.S. price was completely out of reach of most people. Um, and apparently this is something that is a huge deal. Um, and it could make, you know, subscription to even content-based services a lot uh, a lot more interesting. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you imagine Netflix has a smaller library in many countries, maybe would want to charge a, you know, a locally, whatever the local equivalent to 8 bucks a month is, as opposed to the direct conversion of eight dollars a month yeah yeah i you know i don't know i i could see this stuff being in the keynote but i can see how if the keynote was deemed full that these were the things that were let's just announce them a week in advance like i could see it both ways like if there was room i could see holding them for the keynote if there wasn't uh, none of them are that blockbuster of a of a of a thing that much of a blockbuster they'll have enough to go over with the uh, the ARM based Mac OS <laughs> to uh, no. <laughs> uh, wouldn't funny. that be something? You joke. I mentioned that as an example. Uh, I mentioned something like like uh, you know that apps break over time. Like like PowerPC apps don't run on Intel Macs anymore, and that I, something like that could happen again in the future with Intel to ARM. Uh, and that was not one of my coy little. I know something is coming. I have. I don't know. I have not heard one thing from one person that ARM-based Macs are a real thing. I just common sense tells you though that it might it might be a thing because I think Apple has good reason to be unhappy with Intel. Intel seems to be late with everything from mobile chips to desktop chips. Um, Apple would surely like to have it under control under its own control. And the existence proof is there that that there are benchmarks that show the iPad Pro outperforming the the new MacBook One. And it's at least roughly on par in terms of just pure CPU performance. So the possibility of ARM-based Macs 
is real. And when they did the Intel thing back in 2006, um, they announced it at WWDC, not with hardware that you could go buy, but they pre-announced it at WWDC so that developers could start thinking of, you know, get the tools to recompile their apps to be, you know, fat binaries with native ARM and Intel code. So if such a thing were to happen, it, it, it wouldn't be, it would actually be, uh, there's precedent that they might announce it at WWDC nine months before the machines actually ship. So who knows? Huh? All right. (laughs) I'm all for it. I think that'd be great. I, you know, let's I, do it. I, I do too. I don't know. I think it could be. I think it's got to happen eventually. I don't know. It might just be, uh, you know, three, four years from now, and it's like, well, maybe it just took a while for, you know, maybe they, they really wanted those chips to be super fast before they do it. But uh, I just think, you know, I just think it could happen eventually. I just think, and it just seems like something Apple would like to have under its own control. So we'll see. I don't know. What do you think of this uh, this week's rumor about? iMessage for Android. It's in my notes. So that's an interesting thing at a meta level because it came from Mac Daily News, who is not really known for breaking rumors. I, Mac Daily News is sort of a mysterious website to me because I don't know who, there's no byline on it, but it's been around forever. Forever, yeah. I mean, like, I, longer than Daring Fireball, I'm pretty sure. But I don't I don't know who runs it. <laughs> it's a weird little site. Uh Apple to deliver iMessage to Android at WWDC. This was uh, yesterday. Apple will announce that iMessage encrypted text messaging is coming to Android users at WWDC next Monday, uh, according to a source familiar with the company's thinking. This will make it possible for Android and iOS users to communicate securely as iMessage features end-to-end encryption. Uh, Blah, blah, blah. The source notes that plans are constantly in flux leading up to Apple keynotes, and the timing of the announcement could change but that the iMessage instant messenger service would, quote, definitely be coming to Android this year. Um, and the other thing he says is that, because uh, there's a separate rumor that Apple is going to allow person-to-person Apple Pay payments via messages. That's That's been around for a while. And right. it's just common sense that Apple has a payment service. Apple has a secure messaging service. Uh, why wouldn't they let me send you money through iMessage? Uh, the only thing I question about that... Here, this is a great topic. I, I've been want, I definitely want to talk about it with you. The the payment thing though is what confuses me because I thought that so much of Apple Pay was tied to the hardware in the phones, you know, the secure enclave. Well, and to me, the bigger question is the fact that it's connected to the credit and debit card network, which has a cost to it. So. If you look at the free person-to-person payment systems, they mostly go through uh, bank transfers, ACH bank right. transfers. If you do want to use credit or debit, you usually have to pay. Although I think Square Cash is free, but Square's in the position to lose money to get new users, whereas right. that's not really an Apple right. play. So they're, they're eating those transaction fees. So you wouldn't just be able to, you know, I couldn't just send you a hundred bucks and put it on my Chase Visa. That would cost Apple, you know, whatever, like three bucks. Three or three bucks. So they're not gonna do that. Um I don't know. I you know, and, and one of my colleagues reported earlier Apple Pay is interesting. I mean one of my colleagues reported earlier that they would also be working on Apple Pay for mobile web. Uh I don't know how that would work. Would that be 
would there you know how would that launch and how would how would safari access the secure enclave um you know going back to the iMessage thing if iMessage is a marketing tool for selling iPhones and I think that's how you maybe described it in a in a previous show uh it doesn't make sense to launch it on Android but if iMessage is suddenly a platform for payments for potentially bots for all right. sorts of stuff then yeah, let's get that on as many devices as possible. So, and, yeah. and you know, maybe even get a few of those Android users, uh, m- much like Apple Music, going, oh, this these Apple services are kind of cool. Maybe I should just get an iPhone and log right in. Um, so I, I've long been curious as to when there would be some sort of iMessage platform, the way that uh, Facebook Messenger is opening up, the way Slack is. And you can kind of see, I believe Apple itself uses iMessage through some sort of server because when you buy uh if you use if you buy an Apple product through their Apple to the Apple store online and then pick it up in a store they send you an iMessage saying that it's ready for pickup so hmm. and, and I don't think that's someone sitting at a Mac or an <laughs> iPhone typing that in so Apple obviously has a back end to send iMessages through some sort of server queue so the question is how how rich is that? You know, are those APIs? Is that the kind of thing that they would ever open up to third parties? The way that again, Facebook Messenger, Line, all these other services are becoming uh, WeChat, becoming platforms for bots and for for other person to machine communication. Uh, I don't know where that sits for iMessage, but I think it could be really interesting. And. I know there's a lot. This broke yesterday, and most people asking me what I thought were very skeptical of why would they, you know, this seems completely opposite of Apple. And, and you know, uh, maybe iMessage even was this all previously, was a premium messaging service. You know, just one of the nice things you get as an iPhone and Mac user is you get this nice messaging service that's end to end secure. Um, Maybe they're looking past that now. And as you mentioned before, two quarterly conference calls in a row, a main talking point from Apple was that they are a quote-unquote – they're now – you know one aspect of the company that's worth talking about is that they are a services company. And a messaging service would play exactly into that. And bringing it to Android would be a way to emphasize that. I keep thinking when I see like the, the monthly active users or daily active users for messaging apps like WhatsApp and uh, – what are some of the other WeChat and some of these other ones? Um, that iMessage has to be up there in the same ballpark in terms of active users on a daily basis. It has to be that if they sp- somehow, if it made sense in any way to spin iMessage off as an independent company, it would be one of the biggest messaging services in the world, and it would have uh, just by the fact that the demographics of Apple's customers are that they tend to be for lack of a better word, richer, there, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's not just the number of users, but the amount of money that they have to spend is, is significant that that would be a valuable company. Yet so many times when I see, I just noticed it last week with Mary Meeker's uh, internet trends thing. And she talked about the top messaging services in the world and iMessage wasn't listed. Uh, you know, our, Perhaps I'm colored by being mostly Apple-focused in, in what I write about, but I really do think iMessage deserves to be treated in in that caliber, even though it is 
iOS and Mac only. Uh, I think bringing it to Android would open a lot of people's eyes to iMessage's value as an independent service. Yeah, by the way, credit where due. I'm now hearing those words in Ben Thompson's voice, the iMessage as uh, iPhone marketing tool. <laughs> so I think that was Ben who said that on your show a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, maybe. Um, I'm, hearing the, I'm hearing the Wisconsin uh, tones. So my, how could they make head. any money at all on this? You know, like what would be the sense of bringing it, like bringing Apple Music to Android makes sense because the however many Android users are using it are paying for it. So duh, it makes sense uh, to try. What sense would it make to bring iMessage to Android as it stands today? Well, I don't think any, right? Because it would just be that they they would just be losing money on whatever it costs to develop the app, which is probably minor, but they'd be losing on the you know the 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 ongoing cost of supporting all those additional messages. Right, all the bandwidth of photos and videos and and all I, that. I think from when Eddie Q was on the show a couple months ago, I think that at peak that iMessage handles 200,000 messages per second which is really impressive I mean it's you know I know that you know blah 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 Apple gets services wrong I feel like it's like they it, all we see are the ones they get wrong and the fact that iMessage does a tremendous volume and does it really well and in my experience as a heavy iMessage user better and better all the time in terms of like not getting like duplicate notifications on different machines and stuff like that um it, it, you know, there has to be some other way that they're going to monetize it from Android users, whether that's payments or whether that's like bots, you know, from other, you know, like so that other stores could do the same thing that the Apple store does. Um, but there has to be something like that. So I wouldn't be surprised if that rumor is true at all. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'd be, I think that could be really interesting. Uh, I, you know, but you also couldn't argue that that would also be the, uh, the, the, first ticket for a lot of people to to get rid of their iPhone and go to Android, maybe. Um, probably not millions of people, but there's probably some folks out there who would find switching to Android easier if iMessage were there. Yeah, It really is a good network effect and a good lock-in, but if the idea is to build a, you know, a really robust messaging platform out of it that's for other... For, for bots and other services, then why wouldn't you want to access it? And I wonder if like some markets like India, which Apple has now brought up several times as a, as a key growth area, and Tim Cook spent time there earlier this year. You know, I wonder if that's the kind of thing where it's like, well, first get iMessage on your yeah. Android phone, see how cool it is, and then, you know, and then buy a, a, a refurbished iPhone at your first opportunity. But yeah. I don't know. Uh, I I think that iMessage as lock-in is more effective than iMessage as a reason to get an iPhone in the first place. And I've heard stories about like, you know, like teenagers who it's it's you know it's like totally uncool to be getting green messages from somebody. Um, and you know, and there's memes that are out there, you know, where people like on Instagram, you know, uh, tweet screenshots of ooh, gross, a green message. Um. But I can't see how that really, you know, works for anything other than teenagers, right? I mean, who else would be, uh, you know, I notice when I get a green message from somebody and I think, oh, that must, you know, that's surprising that, you know, that's, I wouldn't have expected so-and-so's, you know, to have an Android phone. Um, but 
I, I don't really, I don't, I don't think lesser of them. Right. It's, you know, so I don't, you know, so I, I do, <laughs> well, I, I do no. a little bit. I do. I just think they have bad taste. I don't think of them as a bad person and I don't think they should, you know, they should therefore feel bad and go buy an iPhone. I just think, well, there's somebody who doesn't have, you know, doesn't have the good taste to buy an iPhone. Yeah. Uh, I, sh- I, I was lying when I said, I don't think less of them, <laughs> but, uh, Okay, I, one, one, uh, uh, my Google reporter, Mark Bergen, I excuse that he has a, an Android phone. Oh, he, yeah, yeah. He needs to. Yeah. In fact, I prefer him to. Yeah, I know Mark. Uh, we rode in the back of a self-driving Mercedes together. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, nice. Uh, uh, I talked about it a couple episodes ago, but a couple months ago when we were at the Mercedes self-driving outfit out there in the valley. And Mark and I were the two guys that got picked to go together. Oh, sweet. So we could have been killed together as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Yikes. Yeah. If you follow, if you're a Google reporter, you got to have an Android phone. But anyway, I don't think they sell many phones with it. But I think once you have a phone and you're used to using iMessage, it's definitely, you know, if, you, if you're like, hey, well, maybe one of these Android, you know, maybe there's some stuff in Android that's appealing to me, like not having your iMessage anymore, it seems like, eh, well, maybe I shouldn't switch. But so it would be magnanimous for Apple to offer it on Android. As in terms of like, we you know we don't want to use this as a as a lock in. You know we we're confident that people will stick with iPhone. You know for other reasons and and you know if you do want to leave, take your iMessage ID. You know with you. I I also really do believe that the hassles that, and I think they've fixed some of these problems. But there were problems that people had, maybe still have to some extent. Where once your phone number gets associated as an iMessage phone number. If you do switch to Android and just pop your SIM into an Android phone, you don't get text messages from people. You right, don't from, get from SMS. People, yeah. It's like you have to remember before you switch to disassociate your phone number from your Apple ID and then switch. And that even there were people who even did it the right way and it still got lost. And they don't they don't get text messages from iPhone users because Apple keeps trying to send them as iMessages. And, you know, it's a pain in the ass. So think now you can after the fact go in and remove an iMessage device from the server somewhere yeah i think that's the solution that they can they they've come up with a way to do that they've given uh, delivered some kind of interface to allow it but it wasn't there before here's a question i have though about iMessage on android is part of the appeal to me a huge part of the appeal on iphone is that i don't have a separate app for sms that it just it's just one app and i don't have to worry about it yeah, and, and and similarly, I wonder how that new uh, Allo app is going to work on Android, where it's not the, I believe it's not the default texting app, but no, it is the, so. the new app. Um, yeah, I, I wonder if you'll be able to somehow select it as, a, as the main texting app at some point. I, I would say that we're, maybe we're in the minority. I mean, a lot of people are already using... Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp and WeChat is their primary texting app mentally. So maybe this is not a as big of an issue for them. But I use mostly iMessage. I do too. Or Twitter DM, I guess. But I, a lot of times I send Twitter DMs and it's like if it's an ongoing thread, I'm like, why the hell am I, were we not doing this on iMessage? It would yeah. be better. It, yeah. Or I won't see it for two days because I'm running Twitter for Mac in it. Somehow swallows the <laughs> the notification or whatever, but so I don't know. It's, it's, my verdict on iMessage for Android is maybe 
Yeah, yeah I could see it going either way. And the biggest reason I'll repeat is simply the way that Apple's been saying we're a services company, we're a services company. Um, that would be putting their uh, muscle where their mouth is, right? I wonder what it's like to be on the Android team at Apple and if it's anything like what being on the Mac team at Microsoft was 10 years ago. I do. I wonder. I don't know. Or like the people who wrote or I guess continue to write iTunes for Windows. Yeah. Maybe they're exiled. Could be an, even a, <laughs> another office somewhere. It is worth noting, though, that Apple Music for Android, uh, I mean, I, I don't have, I've tried it. I've, I've installed it on the Android uh, burner phone I have here. But uh, uh, it is, to my eyes, a much more nat- natural Android-style app in terms of UI than any, you know, than any of Google's apps are for iOS. Like Google uses their material design language, which is effectively the Android design language on all of their iOS apps. But Apple Music for iOS or for Android looks like an Android app. It's got the Android style share button, the Android dot dot dot, uh, and stuff like that. Hmm. Whereas iTunes famously was not a very Windows like app at all. And yeah, or Safari. Yeah. I believe it even had brush metal at launch, perhaps. Yeah, I think it did. And I used Safari used the Mac. They they it's like they built like a little mini version of Cocoa into the app, and you, yeah. it used the the Mac style anti aliasing, which you could get into an argument about which one is a better anti aliasing algorithm. Right, Apple's was thicker and fuzzier, and Microsoft's was more a little bit more like pixel perfect, but thinner. Um, but the bottom line is that you just you just stick out. It's like it, you're you're not the platform host, so you should you know when in Rome be like the Romans. When on Windows, render text like Windows. It, it's it, a lot like putting on a stranger's pair of glasses. But anytime I saw the Microsoft anti-aliasing, it I just couldn't even read it. Like it was. <laughs> that's a good way to put it, right? <laughs> it's like putting. Whereas on the Cocoa Apple one just felt so so much more like real print. Yeah. I I should mention that by the time Safari the pu- the plug was pulled on Safari for Windows, they had actually fixed a lot of that. Um that by the time the plug was pulled, they were using the Windows text rendering. I think they did, weren't using uh brush metal. I think that you know, it looked a lot more like a Windows app. Um but it was too late. It was like and they never had uh marketing money behind it. So hmm. it just you know. So I, I should mention that for anybody who actually did the hard work at Apple, if they're listening, that you know, I recognize that by the end of Safari for Windows, you did fix some of those. But anyway, speaking of Google apps, did you see the uh, the Google uh, Motion Stills app for uh, iPhone? Yeah, you know, I downloaded it and it uh, it didn't work. It just, really? Uh, I must have some weird edge case where it just doesn't like my my photo library or my phone or something it just would it, it would show the one of the live photos for a split second and then i would scroll and it would just be all blank so i deleted it i maybe i should try it again yeah maybe it's let me it, guess let me guess it's not featured in the app store nope not featured in the app store <laughs> despite being a very cool app and i wonder why that is hmm 
don't know. You know, one of the things that is different in the App Store under Schiller recently is that they changed the featured apps on almost a daily basis, whereas it used to be like a weekly thing. Like every Tuesday, they'd roll out a new set of featured apps. Um, yeah. Uh, there's <laughs> a, a lot more motion in that regard, too. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think other people are getting bugs, too. So maybe I'll wait for 1.1. Here I'm. I've re, I've re-downloaded it and check access my photos. Yeah, and I, like it, it'll do the first two, and then it's then I'm done. So I don't know. You're some fine. weird bug. You'll fix it someday. It's uh, sounds cool though. I mean, I I, yeah, I the- did shoot a bunch of live photos at the beginning of having the 6s plus and i haven't recently but if there were something cool to do with them i probably would again i shoot live photos by default uh just because i've got the 128 gigabyte phone and it's nowhere near filled up so why not yeah cool Um, yeah i I, and i turned it off for the storage reasons but but i I, I almost never do anything with them though as a live photo because there's they're so hard to share i mean and it is it's a curious thing so the the Google's, if anybody who doesn't have it yet, Google Motion Stills, um, it takes your live photos and lets you share them either as a video or as an animated GIF, uh, which puts them into two formats that you can actually share on like a social network as opposed to the proprietary. And I say proprietary. There's nothing that that at a technical level is proprietary in the the apple's the the way that it stores live photos on disk it's a jpeg and then like an a a, a a sidecar uh mov file like a h264 video with the the corresponding video but the the way that software would know how to play a live video is you know you'd have to spe- you'd have to write write you'd have to specifically backwards engineer the way apple is doing that and so things like social networks like Facebook and Twitter and Instagram don't let you just natively post live photos in a way that if you just post a GIF to Twitter, everybody sees the animated GIF. So uh, Motion Stills makes that possible. Pick an animated or a, a live photo from your library, uh, turn it into a GIF and share or save it back to your camera roll to share. There you go. Done. Um but the second thing that it does, which is really, really, you know, what levels it up, is that they use their um, super powerful image stabilization stuff that Google has to to take out the shakiness of the live photos. And the before and afters on some of this is just amazing. Like it, it just you don't have to do any work. It just identifies, okay, this is the subject of the photo. It's this person. The rest of this is all background. So we'll stabilize the background for the entire animation and let the the just let the subject move around. And some of the before and afters on this are just uh, absolutely mind blowing. But yeah, it's it's kind of cool all the stuff Google's been doing with images lately. Well, and I think this is a pretty cool sign of of sort of because one of the things that I I mocked a little bit or took gentle fun poking at is that when Google announced this, the comments are just filled with Android users upset that this is a Mac, uh, iOS only app instead of yeah. an Android app. Um, and then people would say, "Well, Android doesn't have live photos." And then somebody said that there's like one HTC phone that introduced the same feature under a different name a year ago, so you 
neener neener android does have it if you have this <laughs> one phone out of the 8827 android phones on the market um it's just kind of cool that they'd be will you know that google is willing to make like a cool little ios app that's really only applicable to ios users just to solve a problem that now that you see it you kind of think like why didn't apple solve this themselves you know why didn't apple see that you know these live photos if if they're cool that people are going to want to share them on social networks so why can't they put it into video or a gif file yeah and i mean maybe they will next week but uh who knows yeah. uh but it it really speaks of google being aware of what their business model is which is you know reaching all people on the planet with their services and getting them to share more stuff with google I got to take a break for another sponsor, but before I do, I want to I want to just insert like a parenthetical that, to rewind about uh, half an hour to where we were talking about subscriptions. Um, do you know how to manage your subscriptions, your iTunes Store subscriptions? Kind of. I think you go into iTunes on a Mac. At least that's how I've done it. Maybe and so I'm examine aware, them there. I'm aware of two ways. Uh, you can go to iTunes on your Mac and go to the account menu, and then you go to view my account, and then you scroll down and there's you click another thing, and then you can see your subscriptions, and there they are, kind of hidden. And then on iOS, you can do it on iOS too, and it's even more hidden there, where you go to settings. So far, so good. You would expect it to be there. Um, iTunes and app stores, and then... From there, it doesn't look like there's anything with subscriptions. What you have to do is tap on, it just says Apple ID, and there's my Apple ID. You tap on your Apple ID, and then you get a, a, a dialogue that says, view Apple ID, sign out, I forgot, or cancel. You have to say, view Apple ID. Then you have to type your password. And then, if you scroll down, there's a thing that says subscriptions, and it'll list all your subscriptions. That's good, and you can do things like cancel them there. But I feel like that's hidden enough, and it's good that they're all listed in a row, and that there is, there are at least you know in iTunes on the Mac and on iOS, there's a way to get see. Here's everything I'm subscribed to through iTunes, but that has to be if they're going to make subscriptions more of a thing, that has to be easier to find. Yeah, because definitely. because I honestly think it's not just like hey, you're doing the right thing by the user by making it easier to find. I honestly think that making it easier to find will instill confidence in users that I'm not going to get in over my head uh, subscribing to too many apps. Like in the case that more apps start using subscription pricing now that they're allowed to, um, I think if users feel – typical people just feel like – I don't even remember how many apps I'm subscribed to. It's going to make them a lot. Le- it's going to make them naturally and just common. It's just common sense that they'd be resistant to signing up for another one. Just wanted to throw that out there. That that feature does exist, but I think and I've just asked a couple people here and there, like, do you know how to do it? And most people don't know how to do it because it's hidden enough both on the Mac and especially on on iTunes or I- iOS. All right, let me take a one more break. Thank our third. And final sponsor, this is our good friends at Wealthfront. Wealthfront is an automated investment service with over $3 billion in client assets under management. They manage a diversified, continually rebalanced portfolio of index funds on behalf of their clients uh, in a low-cost and tax-efficient manner. They charge very low fees, and they take every strategy they can to minimize your taxes. 
In plain English, they make it easier for anyone to get access to a sophisticated, diversified, long-term investment portfolio. The idea here is this is where you put long-term savings. They do not have high fees, and they do not have the very high account minimums of traditional wealth managers. Historically, you needed to invest at least a million bucks to get the attention of a quality financial advisor or wealth management professional, and then you had to pay at least 1% per year in management fees. Wealthfront charges no trading commissions and is completely free for accounts under $10,000. And I think the previous deal, I bet it's still the case, is it's $15,000 if you go through the code that I have for you, which is wealthfront.com slash the talk show. So you go through there, you get up to $15,000 without fees. Uh, And then once you go over that, over 10000 bucks if you don't use the code, over $15,000 if you do use the code. They charge an advisory fee of only 0.25% per year, and that's only on the amount above that that minimum. So if you have a $100,000 account, and um, you can also get uh, a bunch of you, – you get $5,000 more in headroom for referring friends. So if you have $100,000 in your account and you have referred six friends to Wealthfront, your first $40,000 is uh, free. And you only pay a management fee of 150 bucks per year on the remaining $60,000. So that in that case, if you've referred a few people, it's only 0.15%. It's a great deal. Go there. Their website can tell you so much more about how they invest, the strategies they use, the algorithms they use, the way that, uh, that, that they can optimize your tax bill and stuff like that than I can because I, I'm not an investment expert. That's why you might want to sign up for a service like Wealthfront. So go there, go to wealthfront.com slash the talk show and check them out. It really, really seems like a terrific way to invest your money for the long term. Uh, what else do you have to talk about? I w- we could talk about what we expect from WWDC. Yeah. What do you, what's your big, uh, what do you think is going to be the, the first thing about iOS 10 they talk about? I, what's the tent pole number one? I don't know. I think that a. I think number. I think that they've done a heck of a job keeping stuff under wraps. Um, yeah, which is kind of new almost because there were a few years where a lot of the big stuff was out by now. Yeah, even software. And I've seen. I mentioned it, you know, on Twitter the other day, and a couple people said, "Well, maybe that's it's because Mark Gurman is between jobs, and that's possible." But I know that. <laughs> well, but he was on the Jay and Farhad podcast. Uh, yeah. the other week. With Jay Arrow and uh, who's now at uh, CNBC, CNBC, and Farhad uh, Manju of the New York Times. I know that when when it was first announced that that uh, Mark was leaving Nine to Five Mac and it was unsaid where he was going, I saw a whole bunch of people speculate that it was CNBC because it was blah blah blah. He wants to be on TV, and, and I choked. I knew that he was going to Bloomberg, so I just coyly guessed. I think people are forget. I think people guessing CNBC yeah. are forget forgetting that Bloomberg has a TV channel too. Um, yeah. But anyway, he was on their show and he talked a couple of things. Uh, it didn't seem like he was holding back. It just doesn't seem like he he knows much either. But maybe he didn't dig as much as he would. I don't know. It's possible, but we don't know. Um, Garman said this. I've heard this too. That there is some sort of visual refresh to to iOS 10. Not like like a radical one, like when we went from iOS 6 to iOS 7, but maybe more like when we went from Tiger to whatever 10.5 was called. You know, and they, the one where they got rid of the stripes and got rid of the brushed metal and said, here's the unified window. Here's what all windows look like. Like that sort of level of 
refresh. Hmm. Um, so maybe the glass panels look different or something like that. Yeah, and I haven't heard any details about it, except I think it might be a little bit uh, less stark. Like, So not so much everything is either white or dark, but maybe there's some more uh, just broader swaths of color. And hmm. it seems like German has heard the same thing. So that's that's one. Does that per- perhaps reflect new hardware color? I don't future? think so. I think it's more like just a refinement of yeah. you know that they they with iOS seven they I think they it's safe to say that they really went and just pixel to pixel just shook the whole etch sketch. They really went back to nothing and redrew the OS. And I think that it's just a refinement of that. Like let's. You know, this is a little too stark. I think we can get a little, put a little bit more pizzazz into the UI, for lack of a better word. I don't know. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But I have all I heard was just that the, all I've all, the only thing I can base this on is just the word that there, it's the UI has been refreshed. I don't know. Do you think that uh, multi multi user mode will be introduced broadly into iOS? I think I think for iPad, I think that's yeah. a great point. I didn't have that written down um to me that's still the the, one of the biggest weaknesses of the ipad is that if it's designed to sit on the coffee table that it's still mostly my device which is problematic yeah and it makes it it doesn't make sense that why you know why not have one that's there and that you know your significant other or your kid can put their finger on it and when they put their finger on it it unlocks with their stuff Oh, great. So now I only have an 8-gig iPad instead of 16. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that would be... To, to me, that's been a, a, a no-brainer since the beginning, you know, and especially since Mac OS has supported that since the beginning of OS X. So. Uh, I think it's a little different with the Mac because the Mac's... You know, it's different because sure, Mac sure. started Mac OS ten started as a multi user thing, but yeah, like, you know, but you know, like you said, it's a solved problem. I mean and yeah. and the solution would have to be a little bit different because of sandboxing and stuff like that and whether all apps, you know, like Right, which Apple ID owns the apps for the different profiles. Right. And- yeah. So there's some qu- yeah, and I guess, you know, Apple, you know, the the app store is actually one of the complicating factors with that. Um but you know solvable problem yeah and it ought seems like something that ought to be solved and since they've they've shown some stuff in education you know where there's these education i I don't know how it works exactly but there's ways for schools to have these ipads where each student doesn't matter which ipad they use they can just log in and 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 use them it seems like that's that work is applicable to the consumer market do you think we'll see uh ios app streaming a la google I don't think so. Uh, I, but then again, I, I the Google thing blew my mind. It never, you know, it seemed too good to be true. So I don't know. It, it, but it doesn't seem to me like iOS apps are as compartmentalized as Android apps. I forget the technical term for what you call like the little actions within a uh, an app where you could just download the one little, you know, effectively just like the sheet for sharing. Um, and I don't know that Apple would do that. I don't know that Apple, you know, I think Apple likes the idea that it's, um, a deliberate action on the user to get native code running on your iPhone. 
I don't think Apple would. I don't know that Apple. It's a neat technical trick, but I don't know that Apple wants to make it that easy that you just tap a URL and all of a sudden, after it loads, there's native native code running on your machine. Yeah, I mean, there's some of that with the what? What is it like the asset streaming or something for yeah. big games or something like that? Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I, I'm trying to think like how technically they could. Um, put apple pay into the to the web browser which is supposedly a thing and you know is that is there is is the website downloading a a one-page app that does the payment i don't i have no idea i don't know yeah i wouldn't be surprised if we see, see payment information uh you know maybe web payments uh user to user payments through iMessage you know we mentioned that when we were talking about the android uh iMessage rumor um, I just had another one in, in my head. Forget it, though. What else are you thinking? Hmm. I don't know. I really should spend more time thinking about this sort of stuff. Uh. <laughs> I, I, it's hard because I feel like, you know, they must have a lot. I mean, and, yeah. and I mean, that's actually what Schiller told me on the record was we have so much for the keynote already that we, wanted to get some of this out a week in advance you know and and you know the 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 devil's advocate take on that is that they knew that some of this stuff might be a little controversial like the ads and search i don't think subscription pricing is controversial but it's certainly something to talk about and maybe they just don't want people talking about that they want people talking about these other more feature oriented things right right um so there's that too but there uh, must be stuff. There must. I mean, so I'm sure they're going to talk about the Siri stuff, right? We oh, have, that's we, it. We have a that's good it. sense that that's happening, right? And German said, "I've had the question of, well, okay, so there's going to be an API for Siri, but what? Where? Where does that go? It, you know?" And German's thing was that it's, you know, and this makes sense. It's the easiest way I think to do it is that it would be part of the iOS app. You know, that you, your your, you know, your app an app for the iPhone could have a component that is a Siri extension, like in the same way that when you have a, uh, a third-party keyboard, how do you install a third-party keyboard? It's an app. There's an app that it, you know, has the extension. Well, so I, there might be an easy answer to this, which is something that I thought of a while ago and, and have now successfully failed at reporting out. But how does it work on the Apple TV? How does Netflix integrate its library into Siri? Because it has. So right. how does that work? Do we know how it works technically? I think so far it's a partner-by-partner partner basis. But like how, how, technically, how does it work? Are there, is there a database they're exposing? Yeah, it Do, must does be. Does their app have an extension into the Apple TV's Siri? You know, if you, if you deleted the Netflix app, would it not search I don't would not search through Siri on yeah. Netflix. Yeah, it wouldn't search through. It must be, or I don't know if if the extension is in the app or if it's just that the extension is in the OS, but it knows if Netflix isn't installed, don't bother looking. Right. So that might be a model of how it works on the phone, but I I don't know. Um, I get the feeling. I don't. I, and it, it, I just have a. It's just the hunch. I don't know that the Siri stuff. It either. Either the Siri extensions are more robust than I'm able to imagine, or or there's more Siri news than just the extensions. Like I just my and again, this isn't like somebody told me, you know, hey, there's a whole bunch of Siri stuff in the keynote. Nobody just told me a damn thing about what's in the keynote. But like my 
just spidey sense is that it series going to get a big chunk of it. I just sort of One because that's where the industry is going, right? right there's, exactly. There's so much going on industry wide with these AI voice assistants, and Apple really was the first to bring it to the consumer market. That they, I would like to think they almost have to have had a lot of stuff that they've been working on for a while, and that they're going to want to show now. Yeah, I I think so. Like I just think that there's there they're too invested in it. And I think that they truly believe it. I really do. I mean, that they still, you know, put Siri into commercials and stuff like that. Um, so I, I would expect a lot of Siri. I mean, why, why wouldn't they, if, if, if they already have the, the foundation for it and other companies are picking up and, and running with the ball, then why, why wouldn't they try to be the best? It seems like that would make sense unless they've seen something that, that they no longer believe in it, but it, yeah, Seems I don't like think they so. totally believe in it. So yeah. I would hope that they have a lot to show, uh, including hopefully things that Amazon and Google haven't thought of yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so we'll see. I don't know. Um, so that's else? part of it. Uh, the watch, I definitely expect watch 3.0 to be announced. Yeah. And I realize, I think that there's an awful lot riding on much improved watch hardware which i would very much not expect to see until september um but however much improvement they can do in the hardware um i there's two you know it's it's too part too much part of the apple brand that you know you're everybody who has an apple watch it's still a new watch right like even if you bought one on day one it's like it it given the shipping delays they had, it still may not have even been in your hands for a year, right? I mean, there were people who didn't get their their watch ordered at day one until June last year. So everybody's watch that they already own is relatively new. So you know, the new version of watchOS has to be applicable to the existing Apple Watch. Um, yeah, and, and my guess is now that they have a year's worth of usage uh, lessons and you know, the, the reality of the app platform, which is that it's kind of a, a failure um, and probably have had time to study how people use use the device that they may majorly rethink the, the paradigm of how apps and glances work and right. and even like the, the home screen complications. I mean, that was something that even whatever last fall I, I thought would be a big thing and that there would be all kinds of cool complications that I'd be able to add. And there just aren't. Yeah. There's a cool, there's a sponsor for daring fireball last week was this small indie app called streaks. Oh yeah. Streaks. And, uh, it really, really blew me away about how clever it was. And it had, a, has a really great complication where it's like the idea is streaks is, uh, I think it's streaksapp.com. So, I mean, they sponsored this site. They didn't sponsor the podcast, but I'll give them a shout out because it's really, really good. And I really think people, it is look good. At it. I will vouch. And it really, really well designed. The complication is really cool too. But the idea is that with streaks, it's like a way to kind of build daily habits. So like, uh, walk two and a half miles every day, take your vitamins, uh, you know, uh, this is say those are your two things you want to do. So the complication shows up as two dots. And when you complete it each day, the dot goes from like light gray to white so that you know that you do it. And then you can, you know, just keep track of it. And if you have like six of them, it just arranges them sort of like the dots on a, on a die. 
It's really cool. Very simple. Uh, and a, to me, a really clever use. It's one of the few clever uses of a complication I've seen in a third-party app. Have you seen the Quartz app complication? Uh, no. Quartz, so my, my former employer, Quartz, uh, had a uh, kind of a neat messaging-based news app that they launched earlier this year. And the watch complication is a uh, just an emoji that, that uh, is a reaction to the stock market. So if it's, so if it's, I I forgot, you know, what the threshold was, but at some point it's the monkey with his hands over his face. If it's like really doing poorly or if it's doing great, it's, you know, something, uh, that shows some sort of ecstatic reaction. It was cool. It's funny. That's Um, actually pretty funny. Yeah. I, um, they're they're very creative over there at Quartz. Yeah. To me, that's the sort of thing that I think they need to improve because I feel like a year in the things that the watch, I have lots of complaints and I really need to write up a detailed view of it but at this point i might as well wait to see what they have in 3.0 um yeah but i feel like just talking to lots of people notifications are a real thing and people like getting notifications on their watch and people like being able to react you know deal with notifications in some way from the watch um and status updates right like dark sky is a pretty cool thing on the watch and getting an alert on your watch that, hey, it's going to rain in six minutes is useful. So that's like a combination of two things the watch is pretty useful for. Status, the status is the actual weather is about to change, you know, and the status of the stock market, the status, the temperature outside, right? Um, and then the notification is actually useful too. Like notification, status, and and the fitness tracking and health tracking absolutely is a popular feature. And I don't know that the watch presents it the best way, but it it's a success story for the watch and a lot of the other stuff that really wasn't the message they gave us a year ago. Right. And you know, I I don't know if they knew, Um, I don't think so. Right. Another one. And I, I would assume that they would show it off uh, during WWDC because it would probably be part of iOS 10 would be my, you know, my, I would say my number one request would be a more robust health app. Um, Yes. Now I have, a year's worth of data on here and yes that screen with the the little loops on it was fun the first few times i looked at it but there's probably a lot more you can tell me about trends or yeah you know hey uh hey hey fat ass you know you, you don't exercise on the weekends enough what, what's wrong with you you know that kind of stuff um and i'd love to see a a better health app and i i would guess that based on the you know what you hear about the teams that they have there that there's something coming for that. Right. It's almost to me like a, a data visualization design problem. Not even almost. That's what it is. It's okay. So so because of the watch, you've collected all of this information over a year of time, but you're not showing it to me in any way that, that gives me any kind of a, a trend or a story or a sense of myself. And I feel like that, that that's something the watch could do and should do. Yep. And actually it looks like it has been updated a little cuz now I can see workout stuff. You know, I I don't have a reason to go to this app every day and I really should. Why not? You know, I'm I'm tracking this data every day. I should probably be reviewing reviewing it and and gaining some access, some knowledge from it. And this is something that I think uh Jawbone tried to do and it's you know, the trends they would notice were were very kind of not really revelatory, so I this was before Apple Watch, so I never really stuck with the the Jawbone system. But I would really hope that there's a lot more that Apple's going to do here. 
Uh, I really hope so too. So I'm very interested to see the watch related announcements. I would, I, I, again, this is a pure bet. I'm not cheating. Nobody told me anything, but I would definitely bet money on a nice chunk of the keynote going to watch. Yeah, that makes sense since it is one of the three, I guess, four major platforms now. Um, assume there'll be some Mac stuff, but yeah. probably not too much. I think that's what I think too, but I would love to be surprised. I know that the Siri coming to to Mac, but that to me sounds like it's just integrating voice search with spotlight search, you know, and it just, it almost seems overdue. It seems like if my phone can do Siri, why can't my Mac? Yeah. Uh, maybe some TVOS stuff too. I wonder about that. I honestly do. Um, it's, it's, it also maybe seems so new that maybe there isn't a ton to add to it. Yeah. May I, you know, I, I can't, a see lot them, of that could be hardware dependent. Yeah. I can't see them not mentioned. Excuse me. Can't yeah. see them not mentioning it, but I I, mm, I don't know. Would be cool, mm. though. Uh, but they're not going to have new hardware, so I feel like they're kind of limited to what they can what they can do. I wouldn't be surprised to see something globally about notifications, just because that's such an important part of the user interface now, and maybe that's the kind of thing where they've done a lot of work on all the platforms to... Yeah. To you know, for last year they they let you organize them better. That's been nice, but I think there's still a ton more they could do there. Uh, it it's really revealed itself as a you know one of the most important user interfaces in mobile. So yeah, I bet there's I bet there's something coming there. I would I would assume I don't know. Uh, one of the changes this year because they're having the keynote at the build. Bill Graham Civic Auditorium, and they send out invitations differently. They don't do like a theme anymore. There's no slogan or anything like that. So like the guessing game where people, we would just try to backwards engineer from the slogan they gave yeah, and the decoration to, well, here's what they must mean. Uh, uh, they don't have that anymore. No, did you see the photos though of someone uh, installing uh, what looked like air conditioning? Ducts, yeah. Like yeah. temp... temp- I, I watched the IO thing a few like a week later and I you know it's like the whole thing is outside really that's that, crazy yeah that's, <laughs> and it seemed like they really got for for the valley for mountain view they really got bad weather it was unseasonably hot huh yeah uh, sure a lot of sunburns yeah Mac rumors has some pictures of the Bill Graham Civic Auditorium they put an Apple logo up front and center that kind of makes it look like the whole thing is an a gigantic Apple store it's but it's just an Apple logo. And then they put uh, uh, six color flags out in front, which looks pretty cool. Because then a nice little homage to the old uh, Apple logo. Oh, cool! But no clues, no slogans, nothing like that. Uh, so there's nothing to go on. Hmm. Yeah, and and you know you got to imagine they'll also spend some time probably talking about the new Apple Music. I uh, and and I, maybe I so, so maybe is this one we'll get a redesigned iTunes for Mac. I think maybe. I don't, I don't think it's know. gonna. I don't think there's ever gonna be a, a a major rewrite of iTunes for Mac. Yeah. But I feel like it. So far, their their attempts to declutter it have been not so great. Something's gonna got to replace that Connect tab. <laughs> yeah. I wonder though because the update that did recently ship 
changed some of the uh, I forget the what's the version number is it eleven point twelve uh, about uh, eleven point twelve point four so one point six. Uh, they did change some stuff in terms of bringing back a sidebar and making putting a little pop-up menu there for switching between uh, TV and movie and music and stuff like that. But, boy, I hope so. I don't know. But I think that Apple Music for iOS and Android is definitely... I mean, this is a bunch of rumors to this front, but that, you know, definitely going to get a simplification because it just seems like it's universal that people are confused by how it works. Yeah. Uh, what else they might have to change? I don't know. And and I've said this before, but I really do mean it. Like as a just as a canary in the coal mine, I found the the Apple Music presentation last year to be alarming because a, a sign of Apple losing its way uh, post Steve Jobs. Uh, and again, I, I think I, I, my reputation as somebody who doesn't throw about this wouldn't have happened if Steve Jobs were still around. Like I don't over you, I don't hit that button very frequently. But that music presentation and last year's WWDC keynote, I hit that button. Like that, that would not have happened like that if Steve Jobs were still around. It wouldn't have gone on so long. It wouldn't have been meandering. It wouldn't have seemed under rehearsed, um, and it would have been more focused. So I'm very interested to see if if they solve that problem this year. Because otherwise, it seems to me that there's some kind of communication problem within the company, that there's this division that can't communicate itself clearly. Yeah, that was weird. <laughs> Are you coming? You're coming, right? I am. Yeah, I'll, I'll be there for uh, about 24 hours, or a little longer than that. But I have to leave Monday almost right after the keynote to so, go to a uh, company meeting that's so. right we talked about this because i invited you to come to the live episode of of the talk show but that's not, uh, yeah. not until tuesday no i won't be there unfortunately <sighs> i'm excited next year next year. Got? saturday sunday monday tuesday four, so four days from now I'll, I'll be doing the live talk show can't even imagine who's going to be the guest this time uh working on it yeah <laughs> <laughs> monday you'll you'll ask uh Actually, about. I think this is the first time you've booked me this far in advance. I did. I'm trying to yeah. do this. I'm trying to book people further in advance because That's good. it's trying. I'm trying. You know, I've been on a pretty weekly schedule too. Yeah. Um and they've been great. I've really enjoyed the shows recently. What all I'll say is that one of these years, the live episode of the talk show is going to have a disappointing guest because the last year, by having Phil Schiller, the bar clearly got raised. Um. It can't get raised much higher, though. And yeah, you better have Elon Musk or I'm, right. uh, Jeff Bezos. All my know. money back. Right. Um, so all I'll say is that one of these years, I'm gonna. The very special guest is going to be Maltz. Nice. <laughs> and it might be this year. We'll have to, we'll have to see on Tuesday. That'd be awesome. Anything cool. else well, you wanted to talk about? Um. No, I can't think of anything. You know what I will say. That uh, the reviewers blew it. The new 12-inch MacBook is a huge improvement over the previous one, and I love mine. That's interesting. What do you think that they blew? Was it that just the overall the, – the consensus I got from the review – I have not used one. The consensus I got was, I can't believe this is the improvement. And that was my first reaction, too, when I saw that it's only 15% faster. But whatever it is, that 15% is the difference between – waiting for the computer every single time I wanted to do anything and feeling like, okay, this computer is, is fast enough to 
you know, is as fast as my brain. Um, well, still a little slower than, than I'd like it. And there, you know, it still chokes on things like Chrome and Google maps and random stuff. And, oh, the new Twitter for Mac app. Don't even get me started on that. But, uh, I use it, you know, as my secondary computer most of the month. And then the, the week that I'm in San Francisco every month, it's my main computer and it's way, it's, it's way noticeably faster than last year's. And, um, is a great computer, a really excellent computer, especially if you travel. And I'm very happy with it. I wish it were a little faster, and you know, it's still kind of on the expensive side. Um, and I get, definitely do. You get good battery life out of it. Much better this time than last time. Although I've switched back to Chrome from Safari, which hurts Ooh, battery yeah, wise. Yeah. Um, but I, I've also been just keeping it plugged in on the plane, so that hasn't really been too much of an issue but yeah. the battery's fine i'm not worried about the battery i bought a couple of these little usb hub hdmi thingers and they kind of help plugging other stuff in when necessary but it's great it's an amazing computer if there were a 14 inch one i'd probably get that i maybe. get the i get the feeling that you know like with the, you talk to people at apple about the watch and and they won't say anything but they nod their head in a yeah you know this is our first attempt, and we're we're learning a lot. And you get the sense that that the next watch will be uh, will show that they've learned a lot. When you complain to people at Apple about the MacBook One, as it's called, they n- shake their head, and it's like, no, this is the future of laptops. Like it'll get faster. Time will take. All it needs is time. And but but in terms of you know complaints about the keyboard or complaints like nobody needs a device this thin. They should have made the battery thicker, et cetera, et cetera. None. They just, no, no thinner. Thinner and thinner. The port and ports are uh, antiquated. Do not need the ports, right? And I'm t- there's a, there's a confidence from Apple that this product is it, it, and again to me it exactly echoes the original MacBook Air. Yep. The original MacBook Air, the one that Jobs took out of the envelope, was like I, I it was like sixty it had like a sixty four gig hard drive and the OS was like. The thirty gig. I mean, it had like, yeah, it was running on like an iPod hard drive or something. Like no, that. it was SSD. That's why it was so small. It was like an no, SSD. It was spinning. Oh, was it? Yeah, I don't. It wasn't know. SSD until later. Oh, or, I, or you know what? No, no, no. You could buy an SSD, but then it was like three grand or something like that. Yeah, it's crazy. It was super expensive, but that they and everybody was like, "Well, it's ridiculous. It's way too thin. I, I want a big fat battery." Uh, and they were like, no, 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 we've got, we've got this. We just need time. You know, time will solve the price and time will solve the speed and time will increase the, the SSD size. And they were right. And I think that's, it's just the same story all over again. So maybe the MacBook isn't right for everybody yet in 2016. Definitely wasn't right for everybody a year ago, but uh, you know, they're, they're convinced that that's the future. So I'm not surprised to hear that you like it. No, I really like it. And I, and I, I can't reiterate like that upgrade I was very skeptical, and obviously, you know, I want it to be faster. And I guess I should clarify: I got the whatever the five twelve gig version with the slightly faster CPU is, right. but not the fastest one, which right. is now like just too expensive. But personally, um, I, I don't have it. I still have a thirteen inch, a year old or yeah. two year old Mac, thirteen inch MacBook Pro. I but I use my MacBook Pro so much less now that I have an iMac at my desk that I only use it for traveling. That by the time I do get a new machine, I think I'll probably get the MacBook instead of a MacBook Pro because I travel. Really... It's it's great. And by the way, so yeah, the first MacBook Air had a 
uh, 80 gig 1.8 inch hard drive, mm. or you could get an optional upgrade to a 64 gig solid state drive. That's it. That's so yeah. we were both right. Yeah. So uh, I I only saw the appeal in SSDs, so that's why I thought 64. But I, isn't it great that the upgrade lost you 16 gigabytes because it was going yeah. to SSD? Well, it was already 1800 bucks. So right. back then, you could imagine how much more that SSD would have cost too. I I've still been using the the 12 inch you know the our small sized iPad Pro the review unit here I have from Apple and I've still been using it as much as I can but for having a and it's to me roughly comparable to that MacBook Air I find that the elegance of just put it on the desk and just flip up the lid to be so elegant in the way that I want like a little laptop type thing on the desk and that the the little flippy cover and make a little tent and bend the thing around like every time i have to set up the the ipad as a laptop thing i just think i I'd, I'd rather have a macbook yeah i also am not a fan of that aspect ratio for something that size it just feels too tall i don't know yeah but uh i, I i'm still very tied to the mac for productivity i'm still the flipping between four apps and yep, me 17 chrome tabs so yeah me too um, i'm too good yeah. at it it's it's yeah i right. totally understand why other people uh who never really got good at the mac like you know if all you ever did on your mac is just open up a bunch of chrome tabs or safari tabs then switching to ios is totally doable right it you know but i use apps you know it's like i use so many native apps and, and i'm good at switching between them yeah um all right your home base is at Recode.com. You're the editor in chief. No, Recode.net. 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 That's what I meant. Yeah. <laughs> Someday we'll get Recode.com. Maybe uh, not, though. I don't recode. know. Recode.net. Well, just type Recode and it'll auto complete yep. because you've already got it in your history. Uh, and you're doing great work there. It's a great staff. And on Twitter, people can enjoy your, your musings at Fromedome, F R O M E D O M E. And you're a very good follow and a long time friend and guest on the talk show and i appreciate it hope i see you uh monday morning yeah thank you talk to you then